Okay, everybody, welcome, good morning. Uh, we're starting a little bit late because public transportation and other forms of transportation have been uh, kind of disrupted because we have a, um, a marathon, at least a half marathon today. So we're getting started a little bit late and we have a lot to do today. Um, let me just kind of tell you what our agenda is. Uh, we will begin with a discussion of the exoneration of two of the men uh, who were accused of killing Malcolm X in 1965. Uh, they uh, were released from prison in the mid-1980s, but only uh, this past week were they exonerated by the district attorney of New York. I wanna talk about that mm -hmm. and to put it, the assassination of Malcolm X in the context of a decade of horrific and high profile assassinations. Then um, we will have a relatively brief discussion of the ongoing economic and political problems produced by what I believe is out of control inflation, which is now worldwide. And then in that context, uh, or along with that, to discuss the sixth plenum or plenary session of the 19th Congress of the Communist Party mm -hmm. and the resolution that they passed. And then finally, uh, we're going to continue our discussion of the free school what we have evolved to, what we are evolving into, and just preliminarily to talk a bit about um, uh, what we plan for 2022. So we got a lot, and I think if we uh, manage time properly, we'll get it all in easily. Uh, first of all, on the exoneration of two of the men who were uh, convicted of the assassination of Malcolm X. Uh, there were three men who were uh, convicted. One of them confessed to being a part of the plot and the actual assassination of Malcolm X. But he also said that the other two men who were convicted were nowhere near the Audubon ballroom where Malcolm was assassinated. Uh, we wanna look into that. Why after all these years, uh, did the New York or the Manhattan, forgive me, DA, finally have to admit after what appears to be a year and a half's investigation. Uh, now, mind you, Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965. 
and only recently, although no new evidence has come out uh, in any way, the DA's office in Manhattan concluded mm -hmm. that these two men uh, who served 22 and 20 years in prison had nothing to do with Malcolm's assassination. Let me, and I'm gonna to try to create a narrative, almost a visual if I can, uh, to describe this event to you. Uh, I recall it very vividly. Uh, I do remember, uh, although I was never a member of the Nation of Islam, I remember when John F. Kennedy, the president, was assassinated, mm -hmm. and Malcolm, in an off-the-cuff remark, said to a reporter that this is an example of the chickens coming home to roost. Mm -hmm. And he was specifically talking about the US CIA's assassination of Patrice Lumumba mm -hmm. in 1961. Mm -hmm. And he said, "You literally, you reap what you sow. Yeah. Uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, the head of the Nation of Islam, uh, had instructed all of the ministers and other leaders of the Nation of Islam not to make any statements to the media or to anyone else about this assassination. Mm -hmm. uh, because he said this president meant a lot to the American people. And literally he was saying, we don't want to antagonize the American people in this time of their grief. And we don't, as the nation of Islam, want the blowback, which would certainly come uh, if we were seen to be uh, gloating or celebrating the assassination of a president. I should say parenthetically, given the doctrines and beliefs of the nation of Islam, Malcolm was not saying anything that was not deeply rooted in the belief system of the nation of Islam. In fact, the nation of Islam believed then that, um, that the white man would pay for all of the crimes that they had committed. That, uh, and they were, you know, um, they had a cosmology and a theology uh, like all religions, that uh, the world is made by God, evil comes into the world, and God will ultimately deal with evil. And that, as the nation of Islam argued, the white man is the devil. And therefore, the nature of this evil was so great that uh, it would be, it would only, it would take God or force, a supernatural force to bring it down. So there would be no sense of sadness or grief in the nation of Islam over the death of John F. Kennedy. Most Black folk, however, did feel grief, <clears throat> deep grief. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But what Malcolm was literally saying is that the chickens had come home to roost, the CIA had assassin or plotted, set up and organized the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, the first duly elected president of the Congo. And you reap what you sow. So Malcolm was suspended for 90 days, which meant that he could not preach, that he could not speak publicly, uh, et cetera. Uh, he was not the first person who would be um, uh, suspended. He was not the last. In fact, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad suspended Muhammad Ali for a while in the early 70s. Uh, you know, and our judgment or our take on it is insignificant. That is the way they work within the framework of their organization, of their value system. But even I think before the suspension was ended, Malcolm had spoken to his closest friends in the Nation of Islam and some outside of the Nation of Islam that he was planning to leave the Nation of Islam that he had learned things about the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Now, parentheses now. Whether the claims are true or not, they have never been investigated or, or proven right or wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, Malcolm said that the nation, had the nation of Islam had become corrupt, that there was a leadership at the top that was preaching one thing and living another way. And in fact, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad had fathered eight children by six different women or teenagers uh, and, and so on. And that he went public and would make these statements and claims to whatever news person would put a microphone in his face. <laughs> this is for the white media, a tantamount to, to their dying and going to heaven. <laughs> they hated the nation of Islam. The nation of Islam was an alternative worldview within the black community. And it was very strong, as it even is today, within the Black community. Uh, and they, they had shown tremendous um, success in taking people who had been the most degraded, uh, uh, people who had been strung out on heroin, people who were um, in prison, uh, and on and on and on and reclaim these people. Malcolm was one of the great examples of this, but there were many others. Uh, uh, Malcolm's the captain of the Fruit of Islam in New York when Malcolm was the uh, minister there, mosque number seven, a brother by the name of Yusef Shaw or Joseph X, uh, who, uh, whose father was a friend of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and his son 
had fought in, uh, I think, the Korean War and came back and was uh, an alcoholic and living on the street. And the Honorable Elijah Muhammad asked Malcolm X if he would go and try to help this brother. And so he brought the brother from Detroit to New York. He cleaned himself up, uh, you know, began to eat to live, as they said, and followed the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and literally became a totally different person. And this is for men and women. Uh, they had a prison ministry. No other religion had a prison ministry. You know, prisons would have uh, the prison chaplain, you know, who, who, whatever he was, he wasn't really preaching to the spiritual needs of people in prison. The Nation of Islam set up a prison ministry and, um, and saved a lot of people from further degradation. So, so many of who were in the Nation of Islam were sometimes what you could call the lumpen proletariat, the underclass, the most degraded. And it was, and they, they, their ministry was targeted, pardon me, precisely upon the most downtrodden. In other words, that's who they wanted. That is their audience. Uh, and so these men and women would become completely different human beings. It was miraculous. No one had ever seen anything like it. But the Honorable Elijah Muhammad believed in doing the work quietly. Uh, he believed in complete separation, which really meant more cultural, ideological, spiritual separation from the values of the white world. You know, uh, and it was a strategy that, that works. You know, uh, it really does work. That one of the great problems that they found that black people faced was the deep sense of inferiority yeah. and self-blaming. I didn't make it because I'm no good and my father was no good and on and on and on. And, and so that horrendous and horrible constant teaching, you know, uh, literally broke many Black people spiritually. You know what I'm saying? So to counter that paradigm, if you will, the nation of Islam had another paradigm where the white world said that Black people were, were closest to evil and subhuman. The nation of Islam said, oh, wait a minute, flip the script. The white man is the devil. And you are actually derived from God. So it was a completely different um, way of thinking about and looking at the world. I would argue that something like that is still needed. It's kind of a reparative narrative. You see what I'm saying? And um, they said, well, you see, uh, you see, you have Negroes that have made it that the white man holds up. Well, they're the white man's Negro. Don't listen to them. You know, you need a belief system of your own. And that's, that's what they taught. Now, 
very successful. I mean, overachievers in every way. He taught, he, he wrote books, uh, Message to the Black Man, The Teachings of the Nation of Islam. He wrote another book, How to Eat to Live. He said, one of the big problems of black people is that we don't know how to eat. We eat the wrong food, bad food. And they would say, stop eating pork, or as they called it, the swine. <laughs> and it was a very bold alternative narrative. It was not, and, and the other thing I would add, uh, and I'm, I'm partially trying to answer Cordoba's question to me a couple of weeks ago. Um, they made it clear, we're not talking to the white man. Mm -hmm. right. See, and that's a, that's a hell of a thing when black folks say, we don't care what you think. One of the problems, even up to today, is the seeking white approval. Uh -huh. That's right. I want to go to Harvard, mm -hmm. because if I achieve in the white man's greatest university, that means I'm a great person, yeah. too. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the Nation of Islam thought in completely opposite ways. That's all I want to say. Mm -hmm. Malcolm was lifted from pe petty criminality uh, to what he became. The genius was already there. It had to have a way to be expressed. And he's, you know, he was a genius, obviously, and a great leader and inspirer. But then when he broke with the nation of Islam, it sent shockwaves throughout the black community and of course, throughout the nation of Islam. They referred to the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who was from Georgia. His original name was Elijah Poole. He and his wife, Clara, came with their, whatever children they had back then, came to Detroit seeking work, the Northern Migration Force. Um, a man came to them, or a man was in Detroit teaching Islam. Now, there are many people who believe that the man known as Master Farad Mohammed mm -hmm. was actually a Pashtun from India. Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Well, some mm -hmm. say India, some say Afghanistan. But, uh, but that may explain the nation of Islam's claim that black folk in this country were Asiatic black people. That, Africa was a name given to the continent of Africa by the Europeans, that it was all Asia at one time. All of it was Asia. And so we are black men from Asia, Asiatic black men. Well, and in, in some ways it's, it's a, a genius move because at a time of the anti-colonial struggle, Mohammed Speaks, which was their newspaper, easily became the most consistently anti-colonial newspaper in the United States. There was no two ways about it. Uh, the other thing is, I'll just, again, parenthetically, they were never anti-communist. Mm -hmm. In fact, I know at least one of the editors of their newspaper who was a member of the Communist Party, and I know Charles Howard, the international correspondent who worked at the UN, and covered uh, 
the third world and the anti-colonial struggle. If he wasn't a communist, he's as close as you get. <laughs> so they did not see a disconnect between anti-colonialism and Bandung, by the way. They were great uh, champions of the Bandung concept. You see what I'm saying? But they had a theology which for many people would say, well, that seems a little bit far afield. You know what I'm saying? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the question is, would they be, were they talking metaphorically or were they talking actually? And for some, it was actual. Some would say the white man is the devil. Look at his history. The white man, they would say the white man was an invention of an evil scientist named Dr. Yaku, uh, that, that they, they were, I mean, this was all real lessons. Yeah. And, and hold it, hold it, Dave. Let, let me keep yeah. going. Before, don't let me break my, uh, yeah, exactly. but I mean, you know, uh, I know Derek is feeling it because he grew up on it like I did. <laughs> that the white man was created from a mixture of cat, rat, and dog. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and uh, Brandon Doe is familiar with this. <laughs> Are you a member of the Nation of Islam? Honorary member. Honorary. <laughs> so, so he. I mean, what I'm telling you is this, that's why they laugh. But so, um, yeah, so you had this, this narrative. Everything you said against me, I'm going to throw it back at you 10 times stronger. That's what it was. <laughs> and, yeah, it was. It was an interesting uh, strategy to address a people, the most oppressed of the oppressed. And, you know, uh, so as they grew and they have this figure, this Malcolm X, uh, who could speak and convince people, you know what I'm saying? And, and so they feared, quote, black nationalists. And so the FBI, in the early 1960s begins a program known as COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program, which was focused essentially and overwhelmingly on the black movement, including the nation of Islam. Like every organization of that time, they were heavily infiltrated. And this is something that you guys have no experience with yet, but it's, you know, it's something you have to know about. Every black organization from the NAACP to the Nation of Islam, to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, to the Communist Party, to any organization was heavily infiltrated uh, by the government. Some were paid informants, some were um, um, just occasional informants. 
the nation of Islam was heavily infiltrated. It is not far-fetched to understand that people coming from prison, people who might still be on parole, people who have criminal records can easily sometimes be bought off. You can understand them. But, you, but it was not just them. You know, people would say the communist party, for every one communist, there are four agents. Well, that was not true. But we were infiltrated. But we were not the only ones, everyone was. In fact, it is believed that the secretary, one of the highest officials in the nation of Islam, a brother by the name of John Ali from Philadelphia, was an FBI agent and an informant. Certainly, one of the things they did was to create divisions in the nation of Islam, playing upon even natural instincts of jealousy, ambition, you know, uh, and a whole number of things like this. At any rate, when Malcolm leaves the nation of Islam, he does not leave quietly. I, frankly, have never been comfortable with what he did. And I wasn't a member of the nation of Islam or anything at that time. Why would you give the enemy the gratification of saying, see, we told you the nation of Islam is racist and is corrupt and its leader who called us, the white man, the devil, is himself a fornicator, uh, blase, blase, blase. You see what I'm saying? And Malcolm X, whenever you heard Malcolm speak back in the 50s and early 60s, he would always, and as the Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us, yeah. and they referred often to the Honorable Elijah Muhammad as the messenger of Allah. Mm -hmm. That's why I said it's a message to the black man. They said, well, you're not talking about actual Islam. He said, no, because the people that I am bringing the message of Allah to are not like any other people. They were enslaved. You see what I'm saying? So the idea of Islam as the natural religion of Black people, that Christianity was imposed upon us in slavery, you see, and that we were nothing that the white man said we were. This is phenomenal. And I know, you know, it was so strong and so different that it was scary. I know as a teenage kid, I was very afraid of them. Wow. You know, when I would hear Malcolm X on the black radio shows, it would be frightening, you know? I mean, scary to me, um, but, but he leaves. And, but he does not take with him a large part of the nation of Islam. 
And he sets up two new organizations. Mm -hmm. One called the Muslim Mosque Incorporated, which, which would practice traditional Sunni Islam. And the other called the, uh, uh, the Organization of Afro-American Unity, which was modeled on the Organization of African Unity of the African Independent States. But the division is sharp and Malcolm had attacked the messenger of Allah. He had attacked who many of them in the nation called the lamb, that this was, this was a crime beyond anything imaginable. He, the honorable Elijah Muhammad literally was a savior to tens of thousands of people. You see what I'm saying? You, I mean, it's, it's very, very hard for me to describe to you because having not come up in such a difficult situation, I lived in a drug neighborhood, but you know, I never you know, was in that, involved in that kind of life. It wasn't in my family. I cannot imagine what it was like to be saved from Elrond and degradation and alcoholism and prostitution and getting on your feet. It was unbelievable. To attack the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was to attack the message of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. There were many in the nation of Islam who whether the Honorable Elijah Muhammad asked them or not, wanted to kill Malcolm. You know what I'm saying? This is unacceptable. Because Malcolm didn't just say, he kept saying, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, please don't say it no more. I mean, you know what I mean? Don't say this no more. <coughs> but he kept saying, <coughs> and he kind of accepted <clears throat> that this could lead to his being killed randomly by members of the nation of Islam. In some ways, it was the discipline of the nation of Islam <laughs> that prevented him from being assassinated by members of the nation of Islam. However, one can imagine also that the um, FBI agents, the CIA agents, the government agents in the nation of Islam were hitting on this hard. You know what I'm saying? That's easy to do. Because one of the things that we know about uh, government agents, they come into an organization and they're the most talkative, the most militant, and the most outspoken and uh, passionate believers. You, you, you see what I'm saying? Mm. So when Malcolm is attacking the nation of Islam and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, the government agents then begin to organize plots to kill Malcolm because to kill Malcolm would then be a, a stain against the nation of Islam itself. 
So on February 21st, 1965, at the Audubon Auditorium in Harlem, New York, at three o'clock in the afternoon, the Organization of Afro-American Unity is holding a meeting and Malcolm X is the principal speaker. A plot to kill Malcolm is afoot. The Newark, New Jersey mosque, we call them mosques, sometimes we call them temples, whatever, was where the shooters would come from. Now, when in all of the discussion of the assassination of Malcolm X, there's never been, except in a recent documentary of a couple of years ago, and that was not adequate in my opinion, an ethnographic study. By ethnographic, I mean a sociological study of that mosque. What was going on there? What was the preaching like? I do know that the minister of that mosque, I only know by reputation, was a pretty stand-up person, mm -hmm. Brother James of uh, Muhammad openly. But other than that, I don't know everything that was going on. Mm -hmm. You get a, you know, and Newark is a crime-ridden city. Uh, a lot of people in the mosque had already been in jail mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. But the plot emanates from there. The shooters emanate from there, I'll put it that way. Where the plot emanates from and who were the puppeteers, we still don't know. But one can conclude reasonably that the way the trial was held and how these other two men were convicted of something they could not do because they were nowhere near the place where it happened was in itself a cover-up. Now, here's the other thing you have to know. Malcolm adhered to most of the protocols of the a Nation of Islam. What do I mean by that? You do not come into a mosque. You do not come into a public meeting of the Nation of Islam without passing through what was serious security. In other words, uh, men and women would be separated. The men, you would come in, you would be searched, you know, uh, for weapons. They would ask you, do you have any weapons on you? Do you have a knife or gun or whatever? And you would be searched. If you had a knife, you had to put it on a table. You leave, you get it when you came back after the meeting. Very strong security measures, even up to this day. The women would be in another line and there would be women's security that would pat them down and search for weapons. However, on this day that Malcolm is assassinated, there is no security at the door. None whatsoever. 
Okay, so already one has to conclude there was an inside job that the government agents were operating in Malcolm's organization as well as in the Newark mosque of the nation of Islam. We do know that there was a undercover police, New York City police officer named Gene Roberts, who was a part of Malcolm's inner circle in his new organization. In fact, a part of his security. We do know that uh, there were other people, both from the Newark Mosque and from Malcolm's organization, who had links to the police, either the New York City police or the FBI. Malcolm is assassinated. They arrest one man on the scene. His name, well, he has various names. One name we know, Talmadge Hare. He also goes by the name of Thomas Hagen. But now, and he's still alive, he has a Muslim name of Hamil, I think, I forget his whole name. He is one of the shooters. They have sawed off shotguns and pistols. Mm -hmm. In the back, there's a commotion. Somebody says, nigga, get your hand out of my pocket. What? And Malcolm says, calm down. And so whatever security he had, they all run to the back. And the shooters go to the front where Malcolm did not have any security and shoot him. And then Talmadge Hare, um, is seized upon an attack by the people in the audience. And they try to beat him up and they hold him and they give him over to the police. But there are others, especially the shooter with the sawed off shotgun, who was a short, dark skinned man. He was never arrested. Only one person that actually was involved and he admitted he was involved was arrested. But the police arrest two other brothers from the Harlem mosque. Mm -hmm. They could not, as they said, and this is a fact, there is no way that they could have ever gotten into the meeting. Number one, both of them, and their names are Norman Bailey, that's you know the government name, and um, I think Thomas Johnson, I know John, Thomas Johnson. Their names are now, uh, Khalil Islam, he died a few years ago, and uh, Muhammad Aziz, who's still alive. They could never have gotten into that meeting. Malcolm's security and the people with Malcolm would recognize them. Malcolm would know them. They were very known in Harlem. They were very known in the Nation of Islam circles. They weren't going to let them in there. No way, shape, or form. So number one, for them to even be in there would mean a profound and serious breakdown in security. Mm -hmm. The security, and they always had very tight security. The other thing is not to have security that they usually had was a serious breakdown. Everything went wrong, so to speak. A week after the assassination, Talmadge, Hare or um, 
Thomas Hagen, whatever name he uses, is in jail. And the police go and arrest these two other brothers, very well known in the nation of Islam, very well known in the, um, uh, the fruit of Islam, very well known in the community. They arrest them. They said, well, what are you arrest? We weren't there. We couldn't have been there. But my point is that this is a part of a cover-up to distract from a further investigation of the people who actually did it, who could be traced back to the Newark mosque and whose description they had and who were known not only by uh, people in the Newark mosque, but people in the Harlem mosque, you see what I'm saying? But they convict uh, 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 Khalil Islam now, and Muhammad Aziz. Uh, Hare, Talmadge Hare says over and over and over again, they were not involved in it. I was involved and there were four others from Newark who were involved. He didn't disclose their names until about 10 years later. And he disclosed, but there was never any attempt to investigate his claims, to go after these people and to arrest them. It was like settled until a year and a half ago. Oh, now we're gonna do, we're all woke and we're all gonna do the right thing. <laughs> they discover, and everybody, no one ever, nobody, I'm talking about in Harlem, at Lincoln University, anywhere, I don't know a black person who believed that the nation of Islam was responsible. Everybody said out the gate, this is the FBI and the CIA. Now you don't have to be politically sophisticated. You know, no one ever believed that um, Khalil Islam or Muhammad Aziz did it or were involved in it, yes? Um, uh, Talmadge hair, yeah, he admitted it. But everyone always wanted to know who were the puppeteers. Mm -hmm. How deep into the state did this go? Mm -hmm. Well, what is now clear is that what went on for over 50 years can now be put to rest. Number one, the Nation of Islam as an organization did not assassinate Malcolm. Number two, Minister Louis Farrakhan did not assassinate Malcolm X. He may have said he is deserving of death. That was the way they spoke. They didn't speak in measured, polite terms. They did not speak that. You know, uh, because their audience were people that you had to speak to in strong terms. Mm -hmm. That's why I say, I, I think I told poor, poor but I don't know how to talk to everybody. There's a certain group of people because of socioeconomic and historical reasons 
you have to talk to them in a certain way and everybody don't have that ability. So when they talk, he is, Malcolm is deserving of death. What he has done is another way of saying he has committed the most egregious crime against us. That's what they, that's not to say I'm trying to kill you, you know, uh, but it is a way of casting you out. It is a way of imposing upon you social death. So now, the ball or the, the focus is back upon the ruling class and the deep state. But then let's look at the 1960s, a decade of assassination. Again, I don't believe I have the language to fully make it live or to bring it alive for you all. You know, in a lot of ways, you all are like babes in the woods. <laughs> it's just, so, I mean, you know, you have never, first of all, we started 1960, we'll start in 1961, the assassination of the first elected leader of the Congo, the richest country in Africa, probably the richest, literally richest country in the world, um, Patrice Lumumba. Most black people who, if they were not full out Pan-Africanists, always had a kind of uh, Pan-Africanism, which said the achievement of independence in Africa is good for everybody. And we were proud to see Ghana, we were proud to see Nigeria, and certainly the Congo. And clearly when Patrice Lumumba was assassinated, everyone knew, that it was the CIA behind it. Everybody knew. So you start in 1961, Patrice Lumumba, brilliant, handsome, articulate man. Then in 1963, June of 1963, Medgar Evers, the head of the NAACP in Mississippi is assassinated in his driveway. Again, one man they claim. Everything is one man, you know what I'm saying? 1963 in November, John F. Kennedy is assassinated. Multiple bullets shot, bullet, one bullet claimed to have gone straight at the governor of uh, Texas who was in the car with Kennedy, turned around, made a U-turn and came back and shot Kennedy, you know? Uh, and on top of it, the assassin was Lee Harvey Oswald, a so-called agent of the Soviet Union. Okay, you see what I'm saying? So again, the one man, one bullet scenario. Now, Oliver Stone has come out with a new documentary called JFK Revisited because it's not settled, just like the assassination of Medgar Evers, the assassination of Malcolm X. These assassinations are not settled. Then in 1965, Malcolm is assassinated. Can never get that straight. Then in 1968, Martin Luther King is assassinated. Again, 
one shooter. You see what I'm saying? And every time they get one of the shooters, the person say either I didn't do it, I couldn't have done it, the gun, the weapon I had didn't shoot that far, <laughs> or something like that, but yet the government keeps saying, oh, one person. Then in uh, 1969, in January, Bunchy Carter and John Huggins, members of the Black Panther Party, are killed at UCLA. Again, one or two shooters claim two brothers. And the funny thing is nobody really did no time for it. Then in December of 1969, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark are assassinated. Now this was clearly the government, the police, but then they cover it up with the claim that uh, the Panthers had weapons and we had to shoot because they were shooting at us. And then the investigation shows that all of the bullets were incoming uh, except one maybe. This was a decade, of, I'm sorry, just one other, I forgot. In June of 1968, um, uh, Robert Kennedy is assassinated in California. Again, one man and Sirhan Sirhan, and he said, look, I didn't do it. And I said this for the last over 50 years, I didn't do it. When you look at the overall pattern, and clearly this is not saying everything that went on, on in the international arena, that this was a decade where the government and its intelligence services were committed, as uh, was said in the COINTELPRO documents by the head of the FBI, we have to prevent a black messiah arising that could lead black people. Mm -hmm. uh, There's just one other thing I, I just wanted to say. Uh, you know, a lot of times uh, all of this uh, creates a, um, a, um, a kind of a culture of paranoia where people will say, you know, whenever there's a difference in an organization, a movement, oh, he's with the, with the FBI, that type of thing. Oh, he's an undercover agent. Well, it's not like there are not a lot of undercover agents uh, in the community and in the movement. Um, as we have said before, everything is done to promote ideological confusion, to make sure that a serious movement never arises, uh, and to guarantee that there'll never be a Muhammad Ali or Malcolm X or Angela Davis or anybody like that who could be a symbol of the fight for freedom among Black people. If such a person does emerge, the final solution always is assassination. Because back in the 60s, they did not have all of the tools of the information uh, age and how they can manipulate culture 
how they in fact can create black leaders for black people. And black folks said, well, where did that person? We never heard of him before or her before. Well, he came, he came out of the University of Pennsylvania's gender studies program. <laughs> so that qualifies him to lead the black movement. Or uh, we just gave her a uh, MacArthur Genius Award. So don't say we're racist and not more than that, don't say that we're not caring about you because we've just given you a leader. <laughs> I mean, the absurdity of it. But it is worth, again, studying the assassination of Malcolm X. I'll stop there. I mean, maybe you all want to say something, want to ask me something. Go ahead. So I'm just taking in what you're saying, and my whole mind is saying, we're we're incredibly into black reconstruction, not for my just for myself Islamically or what that has felt like going to impact in an Islamic environment for a moment in time. <laughs> and maybe it's more important for us to go with black reconstruction because you can't think of the community lives even in Philadelphia as being a major center without the impact of learning about this reconstruction and and taking my advice my own self, take a daily time during the week or something to, to look at the, not just the nation of Islam, but Wardim Muhammad and this whole, this whole Islamic evolution, you know, like an evolution that might've just went and under- Hey, Derek, let's not get on Islam. Let's stay on these assassinations. Well, well I'm, 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 I'm saying it just so that you can have more background, yeah. background confirmation Thing so you can feel that okay, I can look in these directions, but you just can't dive in and dive right out and think it's going to grow and you can see what I'm saying. So it's, it's part perception, it's a, it's a part of your perception that's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So get these facts and get these facts accurate and straight. And and you know, I, I think uh, at some point it is worth our studying organizations like the Nation of yeah. Islam. Mm -hmm. We have to. And that and that will be um, uh, that will be a sociological task in itself, yeah. mm -hmm. and it must be. Yeah. But uh, I only tried to give a a brief. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. Warfdin Muhammad. Yeah. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad dies in 1975, and his son Warif, who was also called Wallace Dean Muhammad, took over the Nation of Islam and quickly went about disbanding it. Yeah and creating the world community of the world community of yeah and it, it, it's, it's still it's I'm just, it yeah. still exists yeah and it needs to be you know we can do i need to i'll be doing community visits not just to the temple but to the mass jizz that's a, that's kind of filtered out through the black community it's it's, it's, it's in construction yes. now now then you get uh louis farrakhan who then decides that no, I will restore the nation of Islam under the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, because his son, Warith, denounced his father's teachings and said this was fake Islam, this was mythological Islam. And Louis Farrakhan then says, no, it is the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and the nation of Islam that has to be, and he began that in the late 1970s. And so now, 
And so, but then, you know, like you say, Islam is proliferated widely yeah. in the black community. So, so temples, there's temples definitively, and it's, and it's masjids that are still have assemblies of brothers from different communities. They all still have some thoughts and feelings about War of D. Muhammad in that direction of the world, Umar, not just the nation of Islam, but the whole world. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so, but uh, yeah, this is what I just, but anything about the about Malcolm and the sound? Yeah. Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I guess, I mean, it sounds like it was like really war in these like 10 years now. What, what? Cause like you hear about like in the news, people are always saying that like these other governments are out here like, I don't know, like Latin America, that they're disappearing people and they're assassinating people. Like, what did people at home think about all that? You're, you're absolutely right. I have to agree with you. It felt like war. Uh, anyone who uh, decided to be an activist on a certain level, you almost made a choice that you would uh, uh, that you might die. Mm -hmm. um, you, um, and then of course, with the assassinations of Malcolm and then King and others, of course, the ground, the foundation for leadership mm -hmm. is weakened. And then you get the rise you get the rise of um, reckless pseudo-revolutionary organizations who, who make all kinds of claims about what they're going to do. And they're a lot very young people, but very reckless. And I mean that seriously. Um, I guess, from the standpoint of Philadelphia, the most destructive, and most of them were destructive. I don't care how you cut it. I was talking to a young woman who attends the free school occasionally yesterday, and um, she is mentored and close to people on, from that fringe side of things. And I said, you know, I said, well, what do you think now? Because I'd always said to her, um, you know, why do you, why do you accept their judgment and not mine? You know, why do you think they're revolutionary and I'm not? Right, right. You see what I'm saying? Right. And it is a judgment. And I said, you believe what they said. You had no evidence in practice. Mm -hmm. Believe me. This is huge because like you all, we're gonna talk about the free school and evolution. So, I mean, you all don't know. Now, somebody could come in here and talk a lot of big willy talk and yeah, I did this and I'm all that and we was this and I was locked up and all that. Yeah, that, that's all beautiful, good and well. But were your tactics and strategy and ideology right? And my argument is most of that was trash. Most of it was trash. And 
performance. To me, and I know a lot of people will be listening to this, the most egregious of them all was the MOVE organization. Abused the community, attacked the movement. Let me just explain that. This is what we have to understand. If you attack people protesting for peace and against the war in Vietnam, that's a political crime. I don't care what you say you're doing or what you think you're doing or whose ideology you're following and whether or not you think you got ultimate truth, you have committed a political crime against the people, against the movement. Move was the most egregious. Coming at that moment, when the, you know, like, like you said, Nate, that decade of assassinations, leaders killed left and right. The Black Panther Party had so much promise, suddenly is destroyed by internal splits that they did not know how to process or how to deal with. They couldn't, too young, no mentorship. You know what I'm saying? But then externally by the government killing their people. They're no longer. And so then you get this organization move. We're the real revolutionaries. We're following the teachings of John Africa. Now, of course, anyone that understood anything about our freedom movement could not see them as anything but disruptors. You know, as quiet as it's kept, MOVE is more popular among white suburbanites than it is among the black community in Philadelphia. I can tell you that. And now, of course, it is all, you know, coming out, the things that they did. And I, you know, it's very difficult for me, very difficult because, you know, Mumia is from my neighborhood. I know Mumia, and, you know, all this Panthers kind of, you know, all of that. So I'm going to support Mumia. But Mumia, did you notice what they did to children? Pam, he like this. I'm with Pam before she became Pam Africa. I mean, for real, you know, Pam, Ramona, mm -hmm. you didn't know this was going on with kids and all this long live John Africa, the shadowy figure, all of this in the name of revolution after the government had killed so many of our revolutionaries. You, you get the, Nate, you get the picture? So once, you know, like of course, in Philly, they're leaders, they're fighting for schools, they're fighting for the streets, they're fighting for, you know, all kinds of things against violence, gangs and all. They're fighting, you know, the fight goes on. But at that highest level, we're, we don't have, we didn't have it. Yeah, yeah, the people lost. And so into the vacuum comes this. And, you know, um, 
in this struggle, often there's more heartbreak than there is celebration. You know what I'm saying? More disappointment. And then after a point like myself, you ask, well, can't the people see this? Why don't, you know, because I ask myself, as good as the preschool is, but what are you, what are you fighting with us for? You know, what, what is the problem, you ask? And I, you know, maybe one of the answers is that the people have suffered great disappointment. And I can tell you, I'll just talk about MOVE right now. It had a terrible, tremendously negative impact upon the community because Black folk gravitate to progressive and revolutionary leaders. They might not, you know, join the organ, but they gravitate, they're supported. You know what I'm saying? And here, oh, they claim long live revolution. And then come to find out you attacking the community? Uh-uh. So that disappointment, and of course, you know, the black political class, nothing but sellouts, nothing but corrupt just like their white counterparts or their white sponsors. So we elect mayors, we elect city council people and things get worse for the black community. So I guess sometimes, you know, you, you think about these things, well, why and when and how? Because if black people weigh in as a people in this time of crisis, everything changes, everything changes. If we are just one fifth of what we were in the 60s and 50s and 70s, just that look can change the whole equation. But our people are not ready to move like that yet. They're not hostile. The masses are not hostile to the preschool. You can see that all the time. But there's certain questions that have to be answered, the certain steps that have to be made. And Black folk have not forgotten the assassinations of King and Malcolm and others. They have not, it's <laughs> like in our DNA now. You just shoot our, our greatest leaders, our greatest folks, just shoot them down. That affects people. Mm -hmm. And, um, so yeah, that and you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm just I, if I went to to talk too much, but I just wanted to describe to you, um, and yeah, that that's what I wanted to say. I remember um, those assassinations because I was a teenager. Yeah. I remember when uh, Robert Kennedy was assassinated, and my high school friends and I were with one of our favorite sisters and so soon after Martin Luther King, I remember how we just didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. That kind of violence um, just quieted us. But hearing your, your narrative, Doc, um, what came to my mind was a, the crosshairs of a rifle. Mm -hmm. And what was in the crosshairs in each of those assassinations uh, was the ideological clarity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and articulateness and dedication to freedom. Mm -hmm. 
at a time when the country was just profoundly conservative, reactionary, and the move was going forward. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of uh, vision and that voice um, is, um, well, I, won't, I don't want to sound too evangelical, you know, <laughs> raise the holy roller. So. Amen. <laughs> but um, spirit is spirit and it's powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I'm saying is that that anointing, which yeah. is the term yeah. that theologians mm -hmm. use, was upon each of these persons that gave them a larger than life. And the ruling class should have been afraid. Very, very afraid. No, no question about it. And I'll close in this note because I came this morning. I was late because the cleaner was too conscientious with my clothes, and she was perfect, and she wouldn't let one lint. I said, "Hurry, I have to go." She said, "No, no, no, no." <laughs> But what I want to say is that um, because of that extraordinary spirit, mm -hmm. charisma, yes, it's indestructible. Yes, <laughs> yes. A spirit is energy. Energy can be neither created nor destroyed. Mm -hmm. It can be transformed, mm -hmm. but you cannot destroy it. So when I hear people talk about let's deconstruct white supremacy and let's destroy racism, no. You will transform the energy that envisions, voices, values, and sustains yes. that material form of that spirit. Yes. In the crosshairs of those rifles mm -hmm. was a spirit not only equal to the darkness, mm -hmm. but more powerful. They right. had to kill it. Mm -hmm. Now, what I'm saying, and I'll close in this note. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> A catalyst, Kadok, what you said, and you said this a couple of times, and you said it before, but at the symposium and now, mm -hmm. as often happens, you always turn. And you know I get carried away with something. <laughs> anyway, what you're saying is that when black people join the dynamic, yeah. it is crucial. Yeah. It will always be crucial. The people who were assassinated are leaders, they're catalysts. A catalyst is an element and a dynamic interaction that affects other things, but it itself has not changed because the energy and the charisma of who they kill is of that nature. Well, I said I was going to stop, but I'm going to say one more thing because I said I was trying not to talk too much. But that's part of my spiritual discipline lately, and I'm contradicting myself. You cannot destroy that spirit in everyone. Uh, you cannot destroy, destroy that, that in everyone. When it multiplies and when it propagates and when you deposit it, and that's what's happening here. <laughs> That's what's happening here. Because it's not one big person alone that's moving the movement. You have many, many people who have that catalytic. And what you were saying, Doc, recognizing it, recognizing the crucial role that we have and are not ready to step into that moment where we can make that kind of difference. Yes.
The destruction of people who they don't care. Like I saw a movie about Gary Hart and what they did to Gary Hart. He was very pro-union. And uh it's like they just took over his mind and did the stupidest things he could do to like implode, you know? And uh, they did it to black black leaders too. Mm -hmm. I can add that down to me. And it's very interesting how um, you just kind of, it's like a dismantling of the human spirit without the murder. And uh, that happened to people. I have, I don't know if any of you knew Henry DiBernardo, yeah. Huh? I don't even know if he's he saying that. I know. Yeah. Huh? Great brother and, and massively intelligent yeah. mm -hmm. and gave everything. You know, I was, I used to interview him when I was recording. How's he doing with you? I don't even know if he's still around. Is he still with know. us? I don't know. I haven't seen him. That's what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Like he's not, I don't know if he, he's gone or, or what, but the dismantling of that human being who was so vital to this community in North Philly, you know, and I can think of, you know, some other people, they'll even let some people get in to public office and uh, uh, dismantle, them, dismantle them through uh, uh, perks and salary, mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, some of them, some of them will maintain their grassroots connections and, and still try to help the community, like David P. Richardson did, or like uh, Roxanne Jones. Mm -hmm. See, I used to cover North Philly when I was the Tribune, mm -hmm. and I, when I first saw it, I was like, "Oh my God, North Philly! I'm West Philly." You know, <laughs> 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 That's That's just, they are. You know, yeah. and, and I really got a quick lesson about. <laughs> The, the beauty of these people in this community, you know, and uh, I will never, I will never forget that lesson, you know. Yeah. But that's what I want to say is like, it's not only that it the assassination, but it's the dismantling, like they did with um, uh, Paul Robeson. You know, that was a dismantling of the human spirit. He wasn't murdered, but it was the Travel, they took his travel visa yeah, yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh -huh. merged them in the media. You know, they, they'll take their money, which I've had done to me. You know, it's like unbelievable. And I have taken stands that have been controversial. I don't even have a computer at home. I'm writing things on tablets. Mm -hmm. That is magnificently powerful. Use legal pads. <laughs> I'm telling you, you don't need a computer. You really don't need a computer. You know, I wrote something. I want to. I want to just mention one uh, thing before you go into that. Sure. Let, let, yeah. let, let, go ahead. Let me go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, I guess in my mind, I just feel like I have to like look into stuff more mm -hmm. because it's like because like what you what you're talking about, Doc. Um, I guess. Uh, with the exoneration, like why now? That's what exactly my question was. Excuse There's me. That. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. going back to the 
and the, <laughs> the assassination is just a whole nother thing. Because like that period, um, there isn't enough space for political education in that time. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's just a lot of stuff happening to various groups. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, from what the image in my mind is with younger people who mm -hmm. also are like becoming super revolutionaries and things like that. And then the influence of Mao and all that too. Like that, um, it's just a, a question of like, well, what is the relevancy, the relevancy of um, political education of people? And how did that also, or the lack thereof, affect um, the movement. But then there's what you're talking about, Tracy, the breakdown mm -hmm. of poor communities, Black communities, period. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in my mind, I do want to draw like a correlation or a certain type of almost timeline to like what, we're, what I can see now in Philly. Um, and even to like the younger, generation um, who are without a vocabulary to understand what we're talking about in preschool or a way to connect to it and you know and though they can connect to it you know in their hearts like they can feel what we're saying but they don't know exactly all the bends and turns of it um so I just have like it's just like those the kind of things popping in my mind. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think part of part of it is that when we learn the truth about things like the assassination of Malcolm X, it clears the path towards struggle. Mm -hmm. Because when they're trying to uh, you know put down these leaders, you know, not just by assassinating them, but then by killing their legacy. Yeah. Elijah Muhammad King, Malcolm, I think the point is to say that like, oh, everything that your people has produced ain't shit. Right. And, right. Or failure. And even with like myself, like the the Vietnam War, oh, it was a civil war, you know, between two people, like, you know, the North and the South and pretty much saying y'all did it to yourselves. Yeah, right, right, right. And so there's no way to go except to look up to the West, to look up to those ideals. And I think, yeah, I mean, it, a lot of it, like, I feel like knowing the truth about the assassination of Malcolm is, you know, like you clear the path, you lift that burden off. So then now the younger generation has that freedom to look at, you know, to look at Elijah, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad as a model. Oh, yeah. And, you know, now you're more encouraged to do it because I'm thinking like, why, like on Netflix, why is it like every year it's another documentary on Malcolm X. Who killed Malcolm X? And then the, the guy who's putting it together is the most anti-nation of Islam. But then the other thing is that knowing what, like once you learn and you know what they did and what they have contributed, you understand that a condemnation of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is also a condemnation of those recovered drug addicts, mm -hmm. those recovered prostitutes mm -hmm. who have tried, you know, who have lifted themselves up. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's a huge phenomenon in, his, in itself that mm -hmm. our generation needs to grasp because how, it's just amazing, like when I think about it, how can you come to just the most wretched person 
tell them that God is in them or that they are gods. And then like a week, a month later, you see them in a suit. And now they're not just like, you know, like a recovered addict. They're standing up against war, mm -hmm. like a whole generation, a whole population of people, you know, who are who see themselves in the in the destinies of, you know, the global south as well. Like they share the same destiny. Like that's that's just amazing. And you know, all of these rumors, like I mean, all of these uh, allegations, like the nation of Islam is uh, very dogmatic, yeah. anti-white, anti-gay. Yeah. I could speak from my own experience. They're not. Yeah. Like they're they're the most well, they're very flexible. One of the most, like, ideologically, like, when you meet them one-on-one, -on -one, very flexible. And I remember, like, I went to the mosque a few weeks ago, and when you, the first thing I saw when I came in, like, after, you know, the security check and everything, was a big flash screen TV. And it was a picture on the flash screen TV of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and Martin Luther King mm -hmm. sitting down together. Mm -hmm. But when you, when you first go on YouTube and you put in like civil rights, NOI, Nation of Islam, you hear, oh, Malcolm calling King and Uncle Tom and like this and that. But then that's how they feel like yeah. the, the division. Yeah. And on the gay thing, like I remember like Brother Gregory Muhammad, he invited me and another former member of the free school to his house. And we had, you know, he had talked to us about his experiences in the nation of Islam. And, you know, he, we had gotten to a conversation about the fire next time where, um, you know, James Baldwin is in Chicago and he is called to meet the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Right. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the differences in, in ideas and, you know, certain positions on, you know, like integration and stuff like that. And, but I remember the part that really stuck out to me was when Brother Gregory, like he acknowledged the differences that Baldwin had on his views with the nation. But he said, we in the nation of Islam, we love Brother James Baldwin. James Baldwin is our brother. And, now that I look back at it, mm -hmm. now that I reflect on it, it wasn't that, it was, yes, the people in the Nation of Islam do see Baldwin as their brother and they do love him. But in retrospect, it was also an extension of his hand to the person that I was with. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Because he was a homosexual. Right. Mm, right and right, right. this is like, you know, it's just like this generosity you know, and like when you go into the mosque, it's always warm, it's always welcoming. Mm -hmm. And on the, you know, on the anti-white thing, I mean, there's a 1967 article in Muhammad Speaks that says the Northern Irish are Asiatic people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's not, there's, I mean, yeah, there's not one Muhammad Speaks newspaper during that period in the six, like late 60s and early 70s that doesn't mention Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And I just think that, Yes, like part of the agenda is to to remove struggle from the table, to tell that tell us that everything that we produce ain't shit, mm -hmm. and that you know so why struggle? Let's just listen to whatever this Netflix documentary says and then go with that. Mm -hmm. And um, another thing is I I feel like you know like when you go to the Nation of Islam mosque, it's not just the members who attend. It's 
regular people like and I, I the last time I went I saw like several young people there mm-hmm. and I'm thinking that may like could it be that the nation of Islam represents a part of the black population in Philadelphia that is waiting for people to join forces with them mm-hmm. yeah. like a, a conscious yeah. part of the black community yeah. Yeah. and um yeah. it just makes me think about the potential of you know, the city of Philadelphia and what is our responsibility? Well, if you think about it like that, I think a lot of people are waiting. You know, even here, there's all this talk, like, um, just, I don't know, just sitting around people oh, like Mamie and Vincent. He's like an interesting person because like he was kind of into like the political, like, you know, superficial kind of like electoral stuff. But like, it, there is that. There is a lot of talk. But I just, I, I'm just not excited by that because I think it's true. Mm-hmm. And the priest will connect to. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead, Trace. I just want to read an abbreviated version of the Communist Manifesto. Well, no, it's not, no. It's, it's not. It's not what you think. It's okay, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you, you are a shining star, no matter who you are. Maurice White. Check that out. Check that out. That's it. Okay. Thank you, Trace. That was very beautiful, man. Maurice White is the founder of Earth, Wind, and Fire. And he just quoted your shining star, no matter who you are. Manifesto. Okay. So you hear it on the name. Okay. Any other questions? Uh, comments? Yeah. Go for I, it. Oh, yeah, from the uh, um Daryl Wasteland Mitchell says Charles Simmons from Detroit was a regular correspondent in Long Beach. Yeah. Excellent presentation, good insights into the meaning of Asiatic black man. Also, the Nation of Islam adopted the 1928 commentary position of the Negro question in the Black Belt South. Hey, he's the devil, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Yvonne says Malcolm not only modeled the OAAU after OAU, mm-hmm. um, but he succeeded in submitting information about the plight of Blacks in the U.S. during OAU meeting in 1964. Right. See the Diary of Malcolm X, 1974, edited by Herb Boyd and Malcolm's third daughter, Elisa Al-Shabazz. Malcolm's diary documents his trips to the Middle East and extensive traveling in Africa that year. Um, and then Yvonne also just notes that Tom, Talmadge Hairs is on the pages. Mujahid of Google Hummus. Yeah. Nabila says, I'm crying about the murder lineup. Speak up a little bit, speak a little bit. I'm crying about the murder lineup, especially Lumumba and Evers. Um, Stephen Palmier says, mass incarceration is an, ex- an essential factor in depriving the working class of its leadership. And Brother Gregory Muhammad says, peace and blessings, family. God morning to all. Recommended reading, but didn't you kill Malcolm by Demetrius Muhammad? Okay. And then gives a link to order it. Mm-hmm. Go, go ahead, Michelle. Well, I just, can I just say one thing, just to clarify? Um, Wasteline mentioned that the Nation of Islam adopted the uh, common terms position on the Negro question as a national question. And I think 1926 or 1928. And the common term is the Communist International 
said that the black belt could, if black people so decided, secede from the American nation and form a nation of their own, a black belt republic. And uh, the nation of Islam, and that, by the way, just quickly, even though it was the common turn of the Communist International that had tremendous impact in the thinking of Black people, including of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who called for, who said that if the nation could not do right by its Black citizens, they should allow us to separate and give us seven states in the South. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to amplify what uh, Waistline said, and that is absolutely right. Um, but go ahead, Michelle, and speak up too. Well, well, I wanted to add a question. I wanted to ask if you could clarify how the assassination of the Kennedys impacted black <sighs> This is a very interesting question. When John Kennedy was assassinated, I think you have to remember that there had not been the assassination of, Amer of an American president in over a hundred years. So it was, it was a shocking thing. Black people felt that the Kennedys were at the highest level of government, friends of the black freedom movement. And we felt, or there was a feeling going around that with the assassination of John Kennedy, that our chances of getting civil rights bills passed were lessened, but it turned out not to be the case because when Johnson became the president, he uh, went uh, very strongly uh, for um, uh, civil rights, uh, the, you know, the Voting Rights and the Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. What about Robert Kennedy? Now, yeah. This is these are very good questions, uh, and I can only give you my impression. Robert Kennedy is assassinated two months after King is assassinated. Mm -hmm. um, Robert Kennedy at the time is running to get the Democratic Party's nomination to run for president. Uh, and he had just won the Democratic primary in California. And so he was on his way. So a lot of Black folk who had a, I, this is what you have done, is this natural predisposition towards the Democratic Party, going back to Franklin Roosevelt and then uh, Johnson and Kennedy. So uh, we're thinking, or many of us are thinking, that this is the lever. Uh, and it was felt that um, a setback had taken place, but not a setback like with the assassination of King or Malcolm or Medgar Evans. Um, and, 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 and by the way, we still had a movement mm -hmm. at this time a new leadership emerged in the Southern Christian <laughs> Leadership Conference, you know, Reverend da Ralph David, David Abernathy, mm -hmm. and after him, others, stellar leaders. There was still 
um, uh, in the Urban League in the Congress of Racial Equality before internal coup d'etat took it in a mm. totally wrong direction. Uh, Congress of Racial Equality is still there. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Mm. So we still, and the churches, mm. and of course the Nation of Islam. So we still have that constellation, that configuration of organizations and movements. So the assassination of Robert Kennedy was not felt to be as tragic as the assassination of John Kennedy. I guess you could say assassination had become normal by that time. I, I don't know if I answered the question adequately. Uh, go, uh, no, go ahead, go ahead, uh, Jake and Ensign. I'd like to come back um, to this question of like, why now? Like why, why now? Why exoneration now? Yeah. And I feel like, I don't know. I don't, I, I can't say for certain, mm -hmm. um, but I can like kind of look at the political atmosphere um, as, it, as it's coming about. I think this is certainly a, a win for the nation of Islam. Um, you know, I kind of have to put that first and that's some, probably something they knew from the gate that they didn't kill Malcolm, that they were infiltrated. Um, they, they always said that if we killed him, we would have told you. Right, right, right. <laughs> and they would have. They would have. You know what I mean? They're not that. I mean, that's they stand up people. Yeah. And so I feel like I don't know because it's like you know, black people. I feel are kind of going along with different political trends that are of the Democratic Party, which is of the state, which is of the military-industrial complex. So, for example, they'll say like on the Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, okay, if he was black, you know, he would have he would have gotten out. Meanwhile, the DA Krasner is letting you know these guys out of prison, <coughs> you know, rap, rapid fire. That's what the police are talking about, you know, um, black you know black people. So there's that on that note. There's just a contradiction there. But I, I you know I think about this all these different things that are happening, and I feel like you know, and I can please correct me if I'm wrong. This is a theory. Um, but I feel like that that it's like a, this is a tool to another tool to pacify black people. Exactly. And I, I don't think yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. It is political. Yeah. This was done for political purposes at a specific political moment mm -hmm. in the history of this country. Oh, crisis. Exactly. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think there's anybody. There's nobody in the black community of any substance is so oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I mean, right. because we always knew that it was not the nation of Islam, and we always knew that it was the CIA and the FBI. We knew it from the gate. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know. And these men had been released in the mid 80s anyway. Mm -hmm. They were no longer in prison. Mm -hmm. um, Talmadge Hare is not in prison, right. uh, and so on. Uh, the other thing is that this brings to life is the fact that Malcolm X was just on the verge of joining with uh, Martin Luther King. However, it should be made clear, and I think uh, Brandon makes this point clear, that the nation of Islam, while expressing differences, with the civil rights movement, especially the idea of integration, because they felt we should be separate. Uh, uh, they would never, because when Martin Luther King and, and other civil rights leaders came to Chicago 
to begin to fight against urban poverty and so on, it was the, um, uh, they went to the Nation of Islam and, and, and the Nation of Islam gave them money uh, and supported them. And of course, just like Elijah Muhammad met with James Baldwin, he met with Martin Luther King at his home, had dinner and all. These were not enemy camps. In some ways, maybe Malcolm's take on things uh, was not the main view within the nation of Islam, for instance, calling Martin Luther King and Uncle Tom and this. Uh, I don't think that was necessarily the approach of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Mm -hmm. yeah. But you're right, it, it is political. Uh, and the question is, uh, to find out, you know, just to think it through. I don't think it's all that deep at all. And I, I don't think that anybody's thankful to this Democratic uh, uh, District Attorney in Manhattan right. for telling us what we already knew. I just, a couple other notes. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, you're talking about the trajectory of the Nation of, or nation of Islam and Malcolm. Um, one thing, <laughs> You know, this whole chicken's coming home to roost. I feel like I, when he says that, I don't know if Malcolm is talking about or is really coming at the Kennedys. I feel that, well, okay, go, go, just go, in go, terms go. of inter interpretation. Yeah, go, go, you know, go, you go. can kind of, I mean, go, 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 go. <laughs> because it's like, I feel that, you know, it's like a, it's like a, a basic kind of thing. Like, okay, if it can happen to X person, it can happen to you. No. He was, in fact, and, and I, I would say accepted this way. Mm -hmm. He was really referencing mm -hmm. the assassination of Patrice. Which is what? And when he says it's coming home to roost, you know, it's just like you reap what you sow. That's all. That's, that's all. Exactly, that's exactly. It's a critique of the CIA. Well, of the American nation. Yeah. That's what he's saying, okay. really. Okay. You know, and I think, yeah, yeah. Well, go ahead. They assassinated. They assassinated 61. They assassinated when the Kennedys is riding high. They assassinate the president of Vietnam. They assassinate those brothers. So they already was in their plot, but they already in deep trouble in Vietnam anyway. They already doing something. We don't even see this. But so so that was something else besides Patrice Lumumba. Just those just those people that was running was running Vietnam, and they was putting another. Another pair back in office again. Got rid of those two and got a new pair yeah. to put in. So that was that yeah. was some more, um, yeah. you know, yeah. things. They used to refer to the CIA as murder incorporated. Yeah. I mean, it was a part of their playbook to go around the world and murder leaders of countries. Uh, you know, one of the most, um, and this is after this, this is around the same, but a little after the assassination of Malcolm, the murdering of hundreds of thousands of progressives and communists in Indonesia. And uh, so, yeah, but go ahead, Samir, and then, and then Jay. I was gonna add to, you know, the answer to Michelle's question about the effects of JFK's assassination. And I, I'm not sure, is Biden a Catholic president? Yes. He's the first Catholic president since JFK. Yeah. Um, every Democrat since JFK has been from the South, Bill Clinton, mm -hmm. Jimmy Carter, um, uh, uh, no president has been from the liberal north, no Democratic uh, candidate has been from the liberal northeast since then. 
Oh, so I think that Chicago does. So, but I mean, the further we get from him, you know, the more exceptions show up. But, um, you know, also every member of his family that came close to achieving the president, it wasn't just JFK, you're not going to be president anymore. Mm -hmm. Your whole family is not going to be president. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. uh, there was some gentlemen who came from New Jersey to the free school and they were talking to us about MLK and the assassination. Mm -hmm. And um, I brought up uh, Anwar al Awlaki mm -hmm. and uh, his assassination in Yemen. Uh, but on top of that, mm -hmm. you know, his son's assassination, he was a, a child mm -hmm. at the time. And then, um, the, you know, his niece, Anwar Awaki's niece's assassination by drone strike with the child again. Um, and um, I've been looking for a quote during the free school, but I can't find it. But it's about, uh, you know, the resistance and the face of this, you know, dark tactic. And, um, and then, yeah, I think in the new JFK movie, uh, it's discussed the um, the fact that Nazis who had been rehabilitated from uh, Germany and brought to the U.S. to run NATO and counterterrorism were involved in the planning operation. So, it literally, uh, my my question to the rest of the class is: uh, It literally seems to me, you know, we're talking about the period of assassinations from the '60s to the '70s. And I'm also curious about this uh, phase between the 50s and the 60s, where you have the defeat of fascism militarily, and then it's rebirth inside the United States mm -hmm. in the form of JFK's assassination. Mm -hmm. It's just all, you know, uh, I think the word is black propaganda or dark, you know, black tactics of assassination and lying and poisoning. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so my question is, you know, how did we go from a great, military defeat of fascism to the rebirth of fascism ideologically in the U.S. Yeah. And uh, because we're ignoring that since the 60s, how has that affected us in the current moment today? Well, I'm, I'm going to let Jalen speak. And then we'll, but that question is still on the table, Samir. My question is, speak up a little bit, please. My question is, why? Say one more time. Why do? Why do people wake up with so much hate? Like we hear about these assassinations of different leaders, and it's just like I don't think that I have never heard of a peaceful movement that hasn't ended in someone dying. And you know, I heard about you know some people nowadays. Now people are just going out and killing children. You can't look at the news without hearing you know child has gone. Missing, kidnapped, someone's died, mm -hmm. shooting, and it's just like people are now waking up with hatred and violence, and it's just now it's making it just harder because it's like now what do you do when you're trying to stand up for what's right and yeah. you're afraid of getting killed mm -hmm. and you might not live to see the day that you know you might change the world for so many other people, but so many other people have hated on you that you're now dead. You're gone and you can't see it. Um, I know it's not relevant to someone's session, but a rapper recently has died because of a shooting. Right. And the crazy thing is this rapper was at a cookie store. He was going to get a cookie. He just living his life going to get food. And he is shot 
dead walking home. And it's crazy to see how other people just wake up and you know get this huge violence on the world. And so it's sad to see so many leaders and you know people who try to change the world gone and dead so soon because of the world's hatred. And that's really all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I would say to you, uh, just to jump off of Jamie, uh, well, you know, when I was reading about JFK over the summer, uh, he was someone who was very familiar with death because he had uh, siblings who had died. Mm -hmm. And when he was young, he was always ill and had scarlet fever. So, mm -hmm. you know, back then they didn't know kids would make it when they would, would get sick. And, uh, you know, then he was also in World War II and, um, uh, you know, he was a prolific athlete and a swimmer and mm -hmm. um, I think uh, his a boat had overturned or something. He mm -hmm. won a medal because he had swam his comrades, uh, you know, back to shore. And mm -hmm. I think that he talked to other people about not knowing if he was going to swim back to shore and if he was going to die mm -hmm. um, out in the ocean. And then, you know, Doc has talked about, you know, King's, uh, you know, behavior before he died and how uh, there was like a peace that just had washed over him. And from my impression from reading about JFK, there was a peace at the end of it, even though he had a messy life or mm -hmm. uh, it was like, uh, you know, uh, the way Jim Douglas puts it, uh, death was always close to him. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, it's tough. Yeah, it's scary. But you know, like it just happens out of nowhere. Like Martin Luther King died in his very home. They shot three of his men in his very home. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No. no, he was in uh, Memphis. Still, it's just like you can be anywhere. You can even know someone behind your back planning your death because of one mishap. And it's like you know, you gotta fight sometimes. And I understand, you know. Life comes with death, which is how it goes. You live and you die, but mm -hmm. it shouldn't have to be assassinated. It shouldn't have to be people wanting to kill you. Mm -hmm. It should have to come naturally. It shouldn't be someone else who's like, well, I want you dead because you did this. It's a mistake. You make mistakes. It's easy to fix them, mm -hmm. but you don't have to go and kill someone for that. And you know, now you know, you're blaming different people. Like those two guys wasn't even near that assassination and they got put in jail. And I feel like it was wrong because if you want to do something right, you have to go through the path. If these people are telling you they were not there, if you look through this whole thing and you see they're not there, why would you still hold them hostage in prison? Right. After but see, all this but time? that's the question. So you're getting at this, the core of it. And you know, um, just like you know, your vision of the world and the way humanity should be is what we're striving to bring into existence. Mm -hmm. Really, you know, uh, Stevie Wonder has a song with a child's eyes, mm -hmm. no need to worry about what has it goes with it. I forget the, all the lyrics, but you know, with a child's eyes, and your your eyes are those of a child, mm -hmm. and but that but those are. Um, you know, that's that's the vision of a child, the aspiration, the desire of a child. And see, the question that we're fighting for 
is that the vision of children yes. not be undermined. Yes. Right, right, right. The children yes. that we fight for their world. Yes. And that's a hard one because, you know, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Jim. you go ahead. Yeah, and that's really Let me, let me let Emily go. Wow. You know, it may 
it reminds me of that speech by King. Was it is it Untitled Hopes or Untitled Dreams? Where he says, King was like, when a person but also the people face so much unfulfilled hopes or like unfulfilled dreams, there's two like reactions of hatred and like most people think that the like most people think the common reaction would be external hate, like you act out on others. But the most dangerous form of hate is when you die inside yeah. and, and you give up. And what that does to your humanity. But there's a part of that speech where he talks about, he's like, but every person has a creative potential inside and it's like yeah. a revolutionary potential. Yeah. And he says it's like best embodied in the Black freedom struggle, where like in the South, you would have on slave plantations, um, like preachers who couldn't read, but they knew how to say, like, I'm a child, we are all children of God. And it reminded me of what we were talking about to nations of Islam. Like, to believe that you are a child of God. Um, and, yeah, it reminded me of what you were saying, and also what you were saying, Casey, too. Of, like, there's a dismantling that also happens when people die. It's, it's a feeling inside this room for me. Not just because my grandchildren, all you know, <laughs> I'm, I, I always was taught and body to me that people will become a symbol, like we are, we are a symbol, and to be a symbol together, mm -hmm. that's the great symbol. Like you use the word symbol, but it's the assembly. This is the, this is the movement when mm -hmm. we can have an assembly. You got the voice of the youngest voice, mm -hmm. that voice in the in the world. Then you have the wisdom of the world that's that's had the Aww. voice. And, and then you got the youth of the world, right? It's so many, you know, it's so many parts. It's so, so many parts to have this general assembly. And it means and it means it the assembly could just grow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's here. True. It's true. Be oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm I, I so I was actually going to digress a little bit and talk about something that confuses me a lot is how the world views the US security state after all of this history that exists and we know about it, we know about Lumumba, we know about Fred Hampton. This, like you're describing what happened with these people uh, from the nation of Islam, it was known long from a long time that they couldn't possibly have done this uh, assassinated Malcolm X. But it's always like they still manage to have moral authority in our times, even yeah. after this history, after knowing about all of this. And this always confuses me when, when. So who has moral authority? Well, I don't know if I want to say moral authority, but just authority in general. You think they still have the guns? So FBI, CIA, the security the state. Yeah. Right when they say Trump's election was rigged by Russia, or when they say right recently, I think the Pentagon said some. It was basically a lie that China has been uh, transgressing its borders with India and the Indian, uh, I guess, uh, whoever was the in command at, in the army, he said, no, this is just a lie. This is on their side of the line of uh, action. It's just why, why, are, why do they still have this authority when we know of all of the lies and all of the assassinations and just punching down on people who are not even trying to compete with you, just, just trying to reach a place where they can give people some measure of dignity and you know live life like human beings. Mm -hmm. It always confuses me that the FBI, the CIA, the Pentagon still has any 
like even a modicum of authority in this world. Um, and I think it sort of ties into the question on culture and you know this this media and just movies and everything also where the portrayal is of this of of these organizations is one where they are like considered to be the defenders of justice and mm. human rights and you know at the front line of that they justify their budgets <laughs> because they have this budget out there and it's like this thing this nebulous thing that nobody knows how much it is or where it goes for that is to get to the key of it right there you know we need some really good journalists and researchers and professors and all that to find out what the hell they're doing with their they can't do it themselves they've tried to audit themselves they can't well, there has to be a way to figure out you know what money goes for what there has to be a they tried well, just the well, pentagon tried to audit we have to demand that it be you can't say that it can't be because first of all that's the problem it's like we we come from a position of weakness and we also um have a tendency to not imagine mm -hmm. a future mm -hmm. that's how they got rid of apartheid with the children's imaginations mm -hmm. they said it will no longer exist mm -hmm. you talk about empowering children it's through uh spirituality yeah. not traditional uh, and, and imagination and i think that um we have to we have to figure out a way to make a spiritual life for people that is more broad and accepting and not uh, uh refining in a way that um uh puts all these uh, contingencies on people that are not livable, that are not workable. You know, because young people want to be spiritual, but when they look at the black church, it's like, well, y'all ain't, what are y'all doing? You know, they have that tendency to, and they see that construction that is so rigid mm -hmm. and it, it doesn't become workable for them. So that's a part of it right there. And I think the imagination is very clearly something that uh, is empowering. Because if you can imagine yourself going to school every day and learning and not being uh, hurt in any way, it, it, it'll happen for you. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think, you know, it's called the and, you know, it's called the I said children's a child's imagination is like the best part because you can think about the impossible and you can really step on that one impossible thing to make it happen through work and tendency and all this and you have to you have to do it. And the more you imagine and the more you work hard, the more you're gonna get there. And so being young and being a preschool is the best part because you still have that imagination and if you're willing to change the world. And if you keep working to thrive that, then you're going to be able to change the world one day. And it takes time. But that's but the one part you have to, you know, wonder is, well, peers are going to be out there, but I'm willing to sacrifice my life for my next generation, for my people to stand up 
and so true that mm. I had something God was working on, and I was willing to make it there. Mm. And mm. with the um, what you said about the security, I think people think security nowadays is just like, what are you getting paid for now? Because you know, with the whole George Floyd thing, Floyd, uh, I'm trying to say what I'm just gonna say George. He died because of a police officer that would not get off his neck. The police are supposed to protect us. The FBI is supposed to protect us. And now they're putting guns on our heads and killing us because of what? You like Trump, you know, did that laughing gas thing just to take a picture in front of a church with a Bible. He put a bunch of protesters in danger who were just sitting there doing nothing in danger. And the police helped because he was the president at the time. And so now it's like, what are you getting paid for? You're killing us. You're supposed to be out there protecting us so we can all live, but you're instead killing us. And you know, now there's like racist police officers and you know, sexist police officers. And it's really like confusing about how security has gone from, has basically stayed the same. Cause back then they were still hurting black people. They were still trying to kill us. They were still abusing us. And now we've grown, we haven't even grown out of that. And that's one thing that really, really needs to change is that we need a better police force. We need a better government yes. who's willing to change what has happened in the past. Yes. Cause out of everything, out of the freedom movement, out of the peace movement, out of children going to school together, blacks and whites, immigration, everything. The police force has not changed, and they will not change unless somebody stands up and say, hey, they need to either cut their payment or fire some people because it's not working out, mm-hmm. and they're shooting and killing them. My community, they're already taking over police duty. The community is. They're watching out for people who are activists. They're watching out for people in the community who uh, need protection and help or whatever. And that's where it is. It's not like confronting them. It's building among ourselves. Mm-hmm. And when you have a community police force and you can call it a security team or whatever you want that uh, takes over some of those duties, you don't have to mess with their money because the community will eventually start to support uh, a, 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 a black security team, you know, that they see being effective and not corrupted, you know? So that's, you know, and I, I hear your language and I, I, I want to tell you, uh, some of those words are destructive. I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but, but saying that, that K word and the M word, you know what I'm talking about? Mm. Like find other words instead of those, you know, instead of killing and murder and assassination. Find other words that uh, that 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 kind of I don't know if I'm gonna skirt it, but there there's a way of of not saying those words because they are they are terms that CIA and all those other agencies like that use. And they think they use it so much that it becomes uh, okay. And it's like, oh, this is just happy time, right, right, right. Instead of instead of 
the real havoc that they're creating. So, and I'm a person of words. So you have to, I think we all do have to begin to reinterpret, reinterpret. Because that's one thing that I wanted, that I have, that I have a little newsletter that I give to black youth and their parents. Mm -hmm. And I talk about not uh, allowing the visions and the, uh, the, the images that we see come into to us, like just sitting in front of television and watching what they project into us. I tell parents and, and students to uh, get certain films that I think are more ethical about Black lives mm -hmm. and uh, watch those instead of allowing that media to just uh, pour over us constantly what they want, you know? Take control of that media, and you can do it with a two-dollar video that you can get. You know, and uh, I have a list of, of films and books that that I suggest parents uh, get for their children. And reading books at home with their children, you know, even if they're they're complicated, I know I can tell. I, got this book I can tell. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Emily, do we have any people on the chat? Okay, go, go, go ahead. Just speak up a little bit, uh, Kayla. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, so this is from uh, Daniel E. Eisenberg Jacobs. Um, I agree with Doc that there are many reparative scripts needed. It's simply because people need hope that things could be different. To follow the analogy, the roles are given from the beginning by an oppressive society. Say that one more time. What was that? The analogy? To follow the analogy, the roles are given from the beginning by an oppressive society. But is not reading the script backwards also <clears throat> also means um, also means preserving the script. You are still in the same play, even if you rewind it. Bonon makes this point in black skin, white mass. I don't want to discount the value of flipping the script as a first step. The ruling class should be called on their nonsense. It may not be something itself that can be flipped over. How do we break out of the script? What points, what points beyond the script? But more so, if, the flipping, if flipping the script is the first step, how does, the, how does flip the flipping the script beyond? How does the flipping the script point beyond the script? Flip <laughs> 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 the script. <laughs> <laughs> And Nabila says, I'm crying about the murder lineup, especially Lumumba and Kurt. Mm -hmm. And also, um, Tony, with a child's heart, don't face the worries of the day. Yeah. With a child's heart, it turns each problem into play. No need to worry, no need to fear. With a child's heart, don't face the worries of the day. With a child's heart, Turns each problem into play. Into play. Into play. Into play. Yeah, that's what it is. That's a beautiful song. You know, this is one of the things that we uh, learned in the symposium on Henry Winston the need for a bigger synthesis so that we can explain the multiple scripts mm -hmm. that are out here. Mm -hmm. And, and you, know, um, you know, the Nation of Islam script, uh, to use, I'm using uh, Dan, Danny's words, 
was a script for a particular situation. And, um, but, but I, I would say this, <laughs> you know, we learned this from the Winston Symposium, you know, in preparing it and talking about it, that um, the uniqueness of the American path to revolutionary change, mm -hmm. because you have right in the heart of all of this, this huge black population whose demands have never been fully met. And while the nation has changed, it is not adequate. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I say adequate, adequate to take all of us forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's, I guess that's what we, you know, we're trying to struggle to achieve or make some gains in the free school. Mm -hmm to understand these narratives. Now, of course, the situation is very different today than it was then, because you have the ruling class which controls so much of the means of communication and the, you know, uh, this diffusion of knowledge and, and so on, that, um, that so much is not like the Nation of Islam script where they're talking about uplifting a, a degraded and oppressed and depressed people. But now we get these scripts that are not, that, that have, pardon me, that have nothing to do with freedom. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, that's what I, but if, if there's no more to be said, I'd like to move on. Uh, Tracy, can I move on to the next part on the agenda, sure. if you don't mind? Uh, no one minds, but uh, uh, then we're going to, I think when we come back to discussion of the free school, you know, your, your point will fit in, Trace. Um, I just wanted to quickly uh, keep on the table this question of inflation. Um, and at some point, we're going to have to go into a, um, a real understanding of what inflation is. Mm -hmm. And to understand inflation is to understand something about monetary theory, theory of money, uh, what is money, and so on. And to help us to understand the uh, profundity and depth of the crisis that this nation and the world economy now faces. Uh, and it is very, very serious. I mean, we all experience it when we try to uh, purchase things that we need. Uh, it might get really out of control uh, this winter with the price of heating oil. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I want us to keep our eyes on that and to understand that inflation is probably the most consequential for political uh, re uh, relationships. It is the most consequential economic phenomenon when it comes to politics. Put another way, just very simply. 
that if you want to upset a political order, introduce long-term and high levels of inflation. And I say that to say that we are on the cusp of that right now. It is not for nothing that Joe Biden's approval ratings are now down around 35%. You cannot govern a country when the uh, chief uh, political authority, the highest political office, only has an approval rate of 35%. You can't do it. Uh, in, um, it's kind of a regime change kind of situation. Uh, it is a way of saying that upwards of 60% of the people do not see the current government, or as we call it, the current administration as legitimate. It is to underline something that we talk about so often here, it is a deepening of the crisis of legitimacy. There's no other way to get around this. And where all of this is going, uh, it's hard to say, but we will be discussing this. And I felt it was necessary to once again, keep this in our consciousness, in our understanding of this moment. The other thing, is that there is a, and now it's it's the CNN, I read the article on CNN's uh, website, mm -hmm. where there is a deep split within the White House oh, wow. between, well, this is the way one person describes it, one analyst, a pro-Clinton faction and a pro-Obama faction. That Kamala, everybody says, well, where's Kamala Harris? Where's the vice president? Well, she's been shut down because the faction that she represents, the Obama faction is weaker than the uh, Clinton faction. This, they all, everyone knew this was going to be the situation mm. because Biden himself is so physically and psychologically weak. Mm -hmm. And he's incapable of asserting leadership and authority. So the, uh, the groups within the White House, uh, within the presidency, are fighting for who will be dominant. Uh, this also makes it more difficult for this administration to effectively uh, put forward its agenda. As you know, they only, uh, the Democrats in, in the House of Representatives only came to some sort of agreement about passing the infrastructure bill. Uh, 
what is it? It's about uh, $1.75 trillion, which is a lot of money, by the way. But they only passed it after the Virginia election. But uh, I say that, so, you know, again and again, uh, the political crisis in the country is significant, but it is only worsened by uh, this rising inflation, which means a decline in the living standards of ordinary people of the working class. The other thing I just wanted to bring to your attention are two events having to do with China that occurred uh, November 8th through 11 and uh, November 15th. November 8th through 11th was a plenum, what they call the sixth plenum of the 19th Congress of the Communist Party of China. Mm. Let me explain what that means <laughs> because uh, the Communist Party of China has no, you cannot compare it to anything we got going on in this country. A Congress of the Communist Party, and now they're, they're, they're going up on the 20th Congress, which will be held in 2022. A Congress of the Communist Party is a decision-making body. Uh, not only does it lay out the general framework of policy and so on, but it also elects the Central Committee, which is the leadership of the Communist Party. The Central Committee of the Communist Party of China consists of approximately 350, 300 and around there, permanent and alternate members. The party itself consists of uh, almost 80 million members. Mm. The sixth plenum, plenum is a word plenary. We, we would say general meeting. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Uh, and in China, according to the constitution of their party, there have to be seven plenary meetings of the Central Committee between Congresses. So between the 19th Congress, which was in 2017, and the 20th Congress, which will be in 2022, the Central Committee is mandated to meet seven times. The sixth meeting was held November 8th through 11th. The significance of this meeting was the resolution that was put forward and passed. This is only the third time in its 100-year history that such a resolution was put forward. <clears throat> the first time was in 1945, after what they called the Yunnan years. Mm -hmm where they had the long march, where they had established that the peasantry would be the leading force in, in the creation of the new China and, um, and such. In that 
six plenum, I think it was the third or fourth party Congress. They established all of those things and summarized all of the experience from 1921 to 1945 and charted the way forward uh, in the building of a new democracy and the first stages in the building of socialism in China. That was the first time. The second time was, is about um, 40 years, no, uh, uh, 30 some years later, 1981, when Deng Xiaoping is the leader of the party. And um, this is what Emily talked about in the China conference. They passed a resolution charting the way forward and looking at the past, including the Cultural Revolution. Mm. This one is probably more important than the 1981 resolution and as important at least as the 1945 resolution. This resolution establishes the thought of Xi Jinping as the thought of the party going forward in this era. I'm not gonna get into every detail of that in the political culture of China and what these thoughts of various leaders represent. But this is only the third time that the thought of the party is associated with the leader of the party. In 1984, the thought of the party was associated with the leader of Mao Zedong. In 1981, the thought of the party was associated with the name of the leader of the party, Deng Xiaoping, and now Xi Jinping. And they say that the thought of Xi Jinping represents the thought of the period of the movement, the advance movement to build socialism and to redevelop the, uh, the theory of democracy, the practice of Chinese democracy. Uh, we will talk more about this because the resolution looks back at the 100 years and says that they are now planning for the, the 200th anniversary of the Communist Party. I, I say that only to say that there is a different confidence, a different sense of history and the future uh, than we see in this country or the West. The last thing is that on November 15th, well, just last Monday, there was a phone, a virtual meeting between Joe Biden, the president of the United States, and Xi Jinping, the president of China. Um, well, to make a long story short, it was a meeting between the representatives of two societies, one looking to the future and one without a future. <laughs> 
This is what we're experiencing. Um, and so we have to calibrate our thinking to what is happening in the world. You know, and I just wanted to put those things on the table. Um, and are there any questions about that? If, if not, we can move on to the last. Oh, go ahead. How do you begin to uh, make a little more clear uh, how the Chinese government works to our Black youth? I mean, how does what? How do you make that a little more clear to how the, about how the Chinese government works to Black youth? I mean, it's so complicated. I'm like, wow. I, <laughs> I didn't even, I, ne I knew those two former leaders. I didn't even know the name of the dude now. <laughs> and I'm like, how do you make that, you know, uh, register? I don't know if there's like a computer program you can create or <laughs> curriculum. Well, or but you don't even have a computer, <laughs> Trace. <laughs> 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 Yeah, you understand. Understand. No, that is so complicated to me. I was just wondering how many you begin. No, yes, it's and, and you're right. Because it's, it's like it's like a whole other form of government. That's We're right. barely um, understanding our own government, and it's all its tentacles and all that stuff. You know something, uh, Tracy. All of this is very understandable, mm -hmm. and I hear you. Um, but everything is made confusing, right, right. purposefully. Okay. To keep yeah. the people bewildered. Right, right. And you're and you're right. We keep you hear all these. The founding fathers said this, and the founding fathers oh, did yeah. that, and our constitution and our founding documents have guided us over these 200 years and we're the greatest democracy. Well, I would say the beginning is that all of that has to be thrown out. Mm -hmm. I just wish, I wish almost every day that the free school could proliferate and all over the city, people would be discussing things like this. Right, yeah, absolutely. And it's not, these are not, I mean, I'm not by any, a shot of the imagination, a bright, a heavily bright person. Persons of average intelligence can understand it, you know, and um, I, I don't even have any doubt about that. Mm -hmm. But one thing I would say that when Biden and the president of China met, it was a society that looks to the future, meeting with the representative of a society that knows it has no future. You know, and um, you mean that, you mean if it continues the way it is, or do you just mean it's like yeah. there's no hope here? What do you think? There's no hope under the, the, the rule of the current elites. Okay. They have that they have 
in every way that you can imagine, betrayed the people. They are totally corrupt. They get into government not to serve, but to steal. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, these things are never addressed. Coming up, you know, China, one of the things that Xi Jinping and those say, we are going to tackle corruption mm -hmm. in our society and in the party. Mm. They're not saying, oh, we're perfect. We're no, we got corrupt people, we got thieves, and they're going to be dealt with mm -hmm. because we cannot become a full democracy, and the Communist Party cannot lead the country as long as we have these bad apples in our ranks. Mm -hmm. One little point. Oh, go, 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 go. One thing that the, and I and I'm not I'm, I'm the Republicans are you know, what they are. But one thing that makes sense is the way they criticize where all this money is coming from. And they ask that question, like, where do we get $1.7 trillion from? We do we just print it? I don't it's understand it. where it's it just printed. Print well, it just printed right back on the purse. No That's problem. the inflation thing, right? Absolutely. Oh, but it, it's, the ruling elite of the United States are faced with a situation of governance that I don't, I don't envy. I would not want mm. to be in their position mm. because to save the system from the wrath of the people, they have to at last act like they want to give the people something. Mm. Mm. See, we have gone through a period of about 40 years of austerity, mm -hmm. taking from the people in the name of the free market. Mm -hmm. uh, the greatest robbery occurred after the financial meltdown of 2008, 2009, mm -hmm. where trillions of dollars were printed to keep stocks and bonds from collapsing mm. while people were losing their homes. Mm. People never got over that, nor have they forgotten. Right, right, right. And that's across the color line. Right, right. And so when this current COVID inspired or, or, or triggered crisis occurred, they said, we better give the people something. So that's when you got unemployment, that's you could have all the food stamps you want and so on and so forth. And so to win the people back, now they're coming with build back better. And I just, you know, it is the ruling class maneuvering. Okay. Emergency system. But what is now so obvious, <laughs> what is now so obvious, <laughs> that with all of the sloganizing, with all of the big talk, the Democrats will probably lose in the elections of 2022. If the Democrats lose, and it's according to how big they lose, the Biden presidency will literally be over. And the question is, will Biden himself have to leave office under the guise of I'm sick or I got Alzheimer's or something like that. Uh, 
it's it's that the crisis is of a magnitude beyond anything that we have seen since the Civil War, and maybe even more severe than that. Well, you know, you know, um, uh, Kamala Harris is president right now. Well, let's not get into that. We got a black woman, a woman who claims to be black or whatever, who's president for an hour and a half. Okay. But, I mean, I'm very, no, 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 that's all right. I'm very proud to know we had that for 15 minutes. <laughs> but, but anyway, I would like to, unless there are other questions. <laughs> Any other comments or questions? I just have a comment. I just got one thing. This is flowing, this, these assassinations for like all of our decades of living. I don't think nobody can describe to us about China or Vietnam or our long history of killing everybody by assassination. Absolutely. I mean, that's, I a, that's, that's there's, no, there's no other bigger case in the world in my life, that right. look at this. Look what it did to your life and mine. Right, right. We'll, right. You, you know what I'm saying? This is this is this is tragedy. They killed two million. They killed this. This the idea of using assassination for not just our leadership, but all the world leaders that oppose capitalism and and imperialism. They have assassinated. The list is on and on. Where is America going to go in the world? with that list being read by everybody around the world. Mm. And then going to be so-called lecture about human rights. Hey, you right. gotta worry about putting that because everybody knows the assassination <laughs> list from everywhere. There were guaranteed, all these people been assassinated. Even that Iranian leader, what was- well, let, let me let me let Pooh up a couple. <laughs> 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 this is a record, man. <laughs> I thought of two things while this conversation was going on. One is that question about how do we, uh, how do people understand the way China governs its people better? And you know, one of the, this is something that's constantly repeated that they make it difficult for people to understand how they govern their people. Yes. And you know, reporting in the West and sometimes reporting in India, copying the West, they emphasis this fact that, oh, you know, all their reports are in Mandarin and we don't speak Mandarin, but this is what we have presumed, uh, this is what we've constructed from the narratives. And the question is, all of this is only a concern because all of this is mediated by the US ruling class. I mean, yeah. if you didn't have that mediation, you would have more, you would, you would be functioning on the basis of good faith. And you know, just generally trusting that yes. people have good intentions, and when they are managing to do so well for their people, you'd have, you know, you take that, give it that benefit of doubt, and there wouldn't be so much confusion. Yes. But this narrative about, oh, they make it difficult for us to understand what is happening and mm -hmm. all of this only serves the ruling class as as yes. as, as far as that, I see. So that's yes. one thing. And the other thing was this question, this thing that Doc said about how the meeting between Biden and Xi Jinping was a meeting of, you know, representatives of a people who have a future and representatives of a people whose future looks bleak. Mm -hmm. This again reminded me of what we've been talking about, the opioid crisis. Uh -huh. And a recent article that I was reading 
I mean, it's just some things just suddenly click. And, you know, this article was talking about the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. And it made this point, which I think is significant, is that all the drugs that are now flooding Philadelphia and any other place for that matter are all downers. Uh-huh. Like, you know, they're not the, yeah, they're not the kind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's not something that you take and then you get this like burst of energy and you're whatever. I mean, there were, they have been periods where you had those kinds of drugs right, also. Right, right, right. But this is very significant, I think, because it sort of reflects on the times that we are living in, where, you know, people have less, they're, they're becoming disinvested in life itself. And, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that life has something to offer, being alive mean, means something, you know, yeah. being a human being alive is something significant. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was very significant that, you know, this article was saying that all these drugs are downers, you know. <laughs> and this, I think, ties to the thing that you were saying about the future being bleak in one piece. Yeah. You know, um, Sick man of America. Even, That's yeah. what it is. Mm-hmm. Even if you have the best governmental structures mm-hmm. and the best uh, legal arrangements and so on, if the people don't trust those who govern them, all of that is for naught. Mm-hmm. And I think what the Communist Party has, mm-hmm. which the rulers of the United States do not have, is a high level of trust mm-hmm. on the part of their people. Mm-hmm. And this is part of our crisis in this country. And I know, uh, because I always think about when, when I took Portaba and Chibarta up to uh, Kensington, and um, they became speechless. They're from India. They spent, you know, all of their time here at the University of Illinois. You know, they they did not have words to describe or to react to what they were seeing, and. Um, I think the the big question I keep thinking about them that I would say is that yes, people are taking drugs that that are downers, that depress them, that shut them out of out of whatever. But what we were seeing is the tip of an iceberg of people who no longer trust their governments, no longer trust the people who you're supposed to trust. Schools are dysfunctional because the students don't trust the administration and the teachers. Universities are pay to play. You know, give me the grade I want because I'm paying you to work because people don't trust their institutions. So no matter how, what, what on paper they're supposed to be, if the human factor, what we call the phenomenological factor, the existential factor, the human to human factor, if I don't care what you say or what you do, I don't trust you. This, when this happens, on the scale that it is happening in the United States, we have entered a different period where the government cannot govern. In China, it is the opposite. The government can govern 
and the people trust their government. That doesn't mean they're completely satisfied with everything and they have to deal with that. But it is qualitatively different <coughs> from what we face. In fact, we could say, I would say this, Purba, what you all were seeing in Kensington and what we see in this country is a moral collapse of the, the relationships between people, a moral collapse of the relationship between the governing class and those who are governing, a moral collapse between the people and all of the major institutions. People just don't believe their government. In India, this is not the case. They can fight and argue and compete over who's gonna make up the government and what policy is going, but you do not see in India, you don't even see it in Egypt or any number of countries, Ghana, where people have absolute distrust in their government. And this is a politically explosive situation. And then to put inflation in the mix is like pouring oil on a, a fire, yes. Or in other words, pouring more oil on a very, uh, 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 very critical situation, and then somebody just standing over you with a with a, a lighter, and every every five seconds he just I can set this whole thing off with the quickness. But it's, it's yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, that's what I would say. You all had no way to understand what you were seeing, and that's what shocked me, and that's what was so impressive to me. Oh, yes, go ahead, Trace. First thing I thought of when you said that was Watergate, right? And I'm thinking of Nixon and all of them. We had no trust in government, but the Democratic Party found Jimmy Carter and, oh, everything's wonderful. How are they going to do it now? They can't. They can't. I, I would say that how long this will be, this unraveling will take, it's hard to say, okay. but we are in an unraveling. Mm. Mm. You know, I would even say, unless you understand the nature of this unraveling, a lot of people try to say, well, we're gonna read. See, reading is not a passive enterprise. Yeah, it, it is a verb, but <laughs> but it's not passive. But is, just like um, take like great novels, take like War and Peace, a Tale of Two Cities, Les Miserables. Take these great um, novels, great. Uh, pieces of literature of the 19th century. You can't read those books as though you lived in the 19th century and understand them. Mm -hmm. You know, you could do an academic thing and, oh, they are one used verbs this way, another <laughs> punctuated that way. And, you know, 
And you could do that, you know, for the all night and all day. <laughs> and in the meantime, get yourself a bottle of wine or <laughs> something stronger. Bottle of whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you know what I'm saying? So it's a beautiful thing if you got the time. But if you feel what is the fierce urgency of now, to read anything, to think about anything with any kind of integrity requires that you approach all knowledge from the standpoint of the political crisis that we're in. Mm -hmm. You just can't do any other way is, is nickel and dime espionage. Mm -hmm. It's the perpetration of a fraud. It's trying to be smart, act smart without really being smart, right? Mm -hmm. You know, yep. and and that's what you know. If you want to, if you want to play that game, go to your nearest university <laughs> and get robbed. The course of postmodern literature. I mean, you come out of there, you know different terminologies, but beyond that, you know nothing, and you're dumber than you were when you walked in. <laughs> that's the truth. So I'm just saying, and I'm not, I'm not discounting. Going to college. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to go back. To yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I would, I would propose your nearest HBCU. Mm. But, uh, but at any rate, we're in that kind of moment. We're in that kind of moment. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you wish to retreat from history, go ahead with your bad self. Mm. You know what I'm saying? But if you wish to be an active part of history, mm -hmm. you need a free school. I'm gonna shut up because then we're gonna move to the free school right. and Brandon and Jake and Serafina are gonna hit the, uh, hit the, hit the ground running. Uh -huh. But you know, here's what I think, Trace. <clears throat> I say to a lot of people, after you've tried everything else, and it ain't took you nowhere. Try this. Mm -hmm. There used to be, you remember that rhythm and blues song, Try Me mm -hmm. by James Brown? Mm -hmm. Wait, you don't remember that, Tracy. I'm going to take your old head hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we know it's shame. Try <laughs> Me by James Brown. You know that song. He was either drinking, but he knew that song. Uh, <laughs> right. He was studying at Cheney University. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, if you done did everything else, try this. Hey. Try this creative synthesizing thinking exactly. modality. Yeah. With that, I'm gonna turn it, I'm gonna turn everything over to Jake, Serafina, and Brandon. I want to talk about what the free school has become, what it is evolving into, and what 2022 uh, looks like. So I'm gonna give Jake, you got uh, seven minutes. I'm timing you, so don't run off in the gym. Okay, go ahead. Well, and I mean that for Serafina. And Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> go, go ahead, Jake. You get started. 
Take your time, get your thoughts together. <laughs> Thanks, Val. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> 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 okay, okay. <laughs> oh, you want somebody to go before you? No. Yeah, that's Brandon. I guess I'm just trying to uh, on approaching the, what the Saturday free school is becoming, right? Um, it was kind of posted or Doc texted me Tuesday. What it has evolved to and then Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. So I feel like there's different ways I, I approach the question because there's just different things that show what the preschool is. Um, there's, you know, I think there's different point, important points that Doc brings up, you know, like the, uh, sometimes the messenger is a message. That's one point that I'll, 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 I'll tease out. Um, sometimes I want to like kind of track the history, you know, of the, of the preschool in terms of what we've done. Um, and, you know, I kind of maybe pair it with the political climate um, that, that, that it was transpiring in. Um, and those are the two, those are the two kind of main things, and then and then it's development uh, as and then just the political climate uh, that that you know the free school is occurring in. I think I guess I'd like to begin by saying that uh, free school, the Saturday free school, um, is an achievement, uh, but a Philadelphian achievement, an achievement of Philly. Um, Doc's from North Philly. You know, uh, folks from Cornell or Penn, they're in Philly, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, we're struggling and we're understanding the political climate that's happening here. You know, we discussed KNA, we discussed the rape that happened on the, the subway. You know, um, we're not unaware, we're not disconnected uh, from the struggles. We're just talking about gun violence, we're not disconnected. Um, in fact, these are, I feel, one of the, um, there's organizations I'm sure that discuss gun violence, that discuss the rape. But that discuss it um, in light of inflation, or in light of Joe Biden's, you know, the corruption, or the, his, his mental degeneration, or in light of um, uh, China, the rise of China, you know. So there's these different things that you know are is showing. I don't want to say set apart, because we're not a part of the world. We're not a part. We're not separate. You know. Um, but we are doing something that is different, drastically. Um, I mean, I guess I can guess can go to the historical, because there's three moments that I come back to in my within when I'm thinking about this. Um, Russia in America, reading Russia in America, um, our symposium on China, and uh, our our symposium on Henry Winston. And this is the, the last, I guess, six months or last however long that we have you know, been discussing ideas. Um, on Russia and America, this was occurring, we were reading Russia and America as you know, the, I, 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 if memory serves, and this is, this is from the beginning of the year, if memory serves um, as like the insurrection, quote insurrection happened, or as the, um, the riots, uh, or, or not the riot, I don't want to say riot, um, as the protest of the government was happening on January 6th. Um, I feel these two things to be significant because this is um, the sort of a, cli a climactic moment um, in, in, in the uh, Trump era 
you know, the, the will of the people, um, their direct, their, their dissatisfaction by taking themselves even. And, you know, there's, there's different things that state, okay, well, it was the FBI, which I, you know, or X, Y, and Z, but for, to, for them to show that they are so dissatisfied with the government, um, that they're going to protest the government in front of the government's building in Washington um, is significant. And meanwhile, we read Russia and America. And in Russia and America, there's different questions that we are raising. I'm trying to, and I, I didn't, I don't know if I, I can raise them all, but there, you know, there's these questions of, well, what, what was Russia? What did Russia achieve? Who was Stalin? Who was Lenin? Um, who, um, how do Russia and America, the Soviet Union and America come together? How is the way forward? Du Bois says that the, the answer of the universe will be found in China. You know what I'm saying? And then there's this rise of China. And in the right as as you know, there's this you know Joe Biden's about to take um, office, you know, and as he takes office, you know, there's you know the Texas uh, the, the the freezing of the water pipes, you know, there's this, there's this there is calamity, you know, um, and we're and we're reading Russia and America, and I think this shows um, our commitment to um, understanding of a forward vision of society, and it's interesting because you just brought up you just brought up um, that our government, uh, the, that our ruling party, that our ruling um, elected officials are taking us to uh, a collapse of civilization. Inflation is very important, I would say parenthetically, to understand. Inflation will break down the, the social contract um, of America, will break down the social contract of, uh, of people. You know, you, you, I worked 10 hours today. I made, okay, I make $15 an hour. That means I have X amount of money. And I want to take this money and buy the um, <clears throat> and buy my family food. And now food is more than I've made. And now I have to go back. But this, but my social, the reason, the, my social contract states that if I work for you, I'm I'm going to make enough money to take care of my family. You've now disrespected. You you betrayed the trust of me. And now I'm going. I I am not happy. Point blank period. I'm willing to rise up. That that's this is the breakdown of a social contract. Um, and so the free school sees the free school sees this and and see what I'm what I'm I, what I'm kind of I feel that the question of see okay that's the first thing the first thing is okay is what we're an organization. There can be no way around it. There, you know what I mean? We are an organization. We meet every Saturday at 10 o'clock. You know what I'm saying? We come, we come together, we discuss ideas. That is an organization. If you want to, if an organization is bad, then we can have a conversation about that. That seems like it's not quite what it is. You know what I mean? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, so it's an organization. And I would say, in light of reading Russian America, um, especially here, yeah. would you say we are a community as well? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I would, I would, I, I see what you're saying with community because it's like, because we're like all coming together talking, but we're, or, but this is organized. I can see that. You know what I mean? This is like, it's like a step because, and I feel like organization is important, especially for the people or people to understand because if we're not organized, we're not really doing. It. We're not going to really. Get exactly. We're not going to, you know, move in a, a a unified way. That's what the free school is also has shown that it has achieved a type of unity. 
And so I think, you know, Emily, you read, I remember you reading the chapter. And I but uh, um, uh, of there's this end called, you know, end the last chapter of world peace, right? And so I do feel there's different ways to define the free school because I, you know, on that basis, I would say that we are a peace organization, <laughs> you know, an organization whose aims is peace. But then, like, well, what is peace? Because it does not peace isn't without, you know, the sense of self. You know, peace isn't without the um, without the people and the people's life world. So then you come back and then you come back straight to okay there's a rape that happened on a bus or there's shootings that happening every day and okay well how are these two relating why aren't young black people coming to free school why can't they understand like you know what i mean well can you understand first of all can you understand what we're saying or what we're trying to do so after that there's the the, the china conference um i'm not gonna be able to get up it's every panel thing but um <laughs> the china conference um sh i mean it shows See, I like the China conference. I thought it was uplifting to read about China because, I mean, it's like, it's like a, I'm going to say your words. Um, one time, <laughs> one time Emil told me that the, the USSR, it was like a slave revolt, you know, that, they, that, you know, it was like a slave uprising, so to speak, you know, and it's similar. China is similar because these are people that were enslaved. These are people that were uh, exploited ruthlessly, uh, where there's landlordism, where there's uh, warlordism. Land, that's landlord is happening today what uh uh blazing ptu for example you know what i'm saying there's still this need to um uh you know for a, a democratic uh uh um uh self-determination of one's life that gets even harder with inflation i'm hearing what you're saying um just could you just conclude with okay in your mind how would you define if you could if you could in a couple of sentences define what the free school is now okay. and just compare it to what it was when you first came out wow. i mean just quickly if you can okay i think a free school is a organization uh, who's aims or today i would say whose aims is peace and um i would say unity in philadelphia and in the world um and i think uh, when i first came to the free school you know there was all these debates there was all we were reading we were reading henry winston um and there was all these ideological and there's all these people coming with identity politics or these all these people coming with uh Per dogma, really dogma, you know, personal, um, um, personal life, you know, things that are wrapped in ideology. Um, and I feel that, you know, it's important, uh, or, or I feel that ultimately what we were doing then was hashing and what, and, you know, Doc's, you know, ability to, to you know, debate you know, was to, to we're, we're reading through, we're cutting through yeah. the mm -hmm. different idea, because these people and don't agree. Exactly. And I that, would say we are, a, a, I would say, thing, yeah. yeah, I would say we are an organization that we're trying to develop ourselves to become uh, people that can stand up to the state, you know, people that can, um, uh, that, and we are people that can understand uh, we're on the like you say we're on the level of the ruling class. I don't, you know I don't mean to just yeah, tag on what you're saying, but and people that can show a way forward. You know people that can go forward into the and connect 
what the ideas the, these uh connect this the, the the make sense of the world make 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 a truth you know and that, and that was the that was the aim back in the day but it's clearer now because we've been able to understand china we've been we've been getting these questions right you know struggle through it that's very good. Thank you so much, Jay. Very helpful. I'd like to turn it over to uh, Serafine. <laughs> Without further ado, I was going to expand. Yeah, right, right. I'm good. I'm, I'm excited to hear what everyone has to say anyway. But what can't be denied about the preschool is that it is a kind of school of thought. Mm -hmm. That's in my mind. Yes. Um, it's about the political education of the people. Um, and I'm interested in how the free school um, develops in terms of its like structure, because it's like, it's about people who come in here, you know what I mean? So it's like about the people and dealing in the relationships that people have with each other here and what we have done in free school outside, which is awesome. And, other reading groups and book clubs. That's exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's a big thing. Yeah. So yeah. in my mind, um, like what free school is now mm -hmm. is an organism. Is mm -hmm. um, and I and I think I'm like comfortable with that word because for me it means that it's multi-dimensional mm -hmm. and it uh, it's like it's like. I'm not trying to just use words, but it's just like an organization is one thing, but then you have the moral um, uplifting factor that the, 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 substance. the substance of the preschool, mm -hmm. which yes. is like the reason why you go to the nation Islam church or anything like that. Yeah. The church isn't just the building, <laughs> nor is it just like the dogma of going to church, but like who you know in the church, what they mean to you, what they've taught, taught you and whatnot like that. So, um, so, I mean, the free school doesn't have a building either. Mm. It's just in the minds of all of us mm. when we come okay. also. Um, so the free school can be anywhere technically, because I know that people come into the free school and want to make another free school somewhere else, right? right? But you can't really do that. You kind of have to come to free school. That's period. Like you can't really copy like in that way. But the thing that's important about the book clubs is that it's kind of like, it's really like, I'm really stuck on the tree, like analogy, yeah, exactly. because like we're connected to the free school and the people who are connected to free school are connected to like other book clubs or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it all comes back down to the same, <coughs> same center. Mm -hmm. um, so it's in that way, I don't know the communist party and how like one, it, it was run in a way or how it was built. Mm -hmm. But I can say that like it's like it's um i have to i have to it's like a it's like a question i still have to look into like how does a party system work how does you know the ccp also brings up another question of the models of yeah. governance and things mm -hmm. like that so um yeah but 
But, you know, also with the, uh, what I'm trying to say is that the free school is always struggling um, because we're dealing with political education. Like we're educating ourselves and trying to find the right vocabulary, the right way of thinking to connect to the moment and connect to people, et cetera. Um, and that's also why like anybody who comes to the free school has something to give to the free school, that's period. Um, like, and what you do in the world outside of free school, eventually if you become committed to what it is that we're actually trying to say here, has everything to do with propaganda of the free school. Um, like, I can only say from my position, right? And I'm gonna only speak from that because I know that like, um, I came in being an artist and I'm always gonna be that. But no, as in like literally, if I'm on the planet to do this and that's what I'm gonna do. But if I'm on the planet to be a scientist, then I'm gonna be a scientist. Um, but the way that I think about what I'm doing, the way that I do what I'm doing, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Also changes. Yeah. It has a different impetus. It has a different purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and that is alongside with what Jacob was pointing out with the, the struggling through um, the very, like the mindsets that people have when they first get, come here, either a couple years back, like we weren't formulating things in the same way as we were now. Um, though we still reference and learn and read the same essays, people, et cetera. Um, you know, and we still have sense. So like, that's what I'm thinking about in terms of the school of thought, like dealing with the human being that free school consists of, but also affects like in Philly and um, just on a personal, interpersonal level in the day to day. Um, and what I mean is also like, well, we look at Du Bois, um, King, Baldwin, these, these are our people. Um, and to the cult, cult like question, like, I don't think that's a relevant comment because when we're able to become and grow into ourselves in the free school and we're able to also see more clearly, um, I guess both like the world really, like the things that are happening around us. Um, that's that's a different thing than just, I'm not just following. I never was just a follower. That's just me personally. But I'm not just following like Doc and what he says. I'm not just following what anybody, but if it's right, then it's, that's a whole new thing. So like that, so it's like the free school seeks truth um, in essence, in substance, but its purpose is for like the political, question to actually change you know this country um in an actual in an actual in a substantial way um no call on brandon so that was good
the the thing that has been consistent within the free school ever since I've known Doc is that we always confront the ideas of the ruling class. And we talk about how we talk about how they affect people and the consequences of them. But also in like on the other hand, we also offer, we discuss a way forward with the foundation of the anti-colonial movements, mm -hmm. um, the black freedom movements, mm -hmm. and also the rise of Asia today. Yeah. And I just think that's a hell of a combination. Yeah. And like, yeah. you know, like it, it, it makes me look at people differently. Like it, it makes me, it gives me like a sense of rejuvenation because like, I think what Jake was trying to get to the other last week was like, you know, like when you're walking the street and you just see people, um, you know, like you walk past people, you see them, you're kind of like in Philly, like the mentality is always, you know, mind your own business. You know, you're sitting next to someone on the train, like you shouldn't talk to them or anything. But now, like, because we we have a foundation, like you see the human in them and then you see, you understand where they come from, what's affecting them. And suddenly like there's a potential for um, a relationship to be built. And if there's potential for a relationship to be built, there's also potential for a change to take place within and uh, a mutual learning and a mutual growth. Um, so I think that's one of the things too, like in the free school, um, you know, it's an instrument for ideological clarity, but like Serafina said, it's something deeper than that. Like there's a very soulful aspect. And, um, you know, we're also learning like the methods of revolutionary practice, like, like what, like how, like, and just like the question that Doc was raising, like, how do you speak to people? How do you move them? Um, it's just always something that I'm thinking about. And, but it's because of the free school that I actually think about these questions. And, um, you know, yeah, like these ideas, like when we discuss ideas, they don't just happen in isolation, but it comes through practice. It comes through, you know, we might think uh, one way first, but what, after we have a conference and we have a discussion or we visit a certain venue um, or just anything that happens and we an experience that we have and we bring it back in the free school to discuss it, we change, we might change after that. So there's a, a flexibility in that that I think grounds us in human beings because human beings are, you know, like we're, I don't want to, you know, say complicated because the academics be saying that <laughs> but like you know human beings you know we're you know what i mean like we like we complex, complex. <laughs> yeah. and um that's something that i really appreciate about the free school um but also that everyone has a contribution to make i think that this is the only place you can come to where you have someone like myself, Jake, Amir, I mean, just everyone in this room, Derek, and just the whole idea of romanticizing the youth, I think is bull. Because the free school wouldn't be anything without people like Derek, people like Munchie, Cynthia, and you know, yeah, Jayla, er, like just everybody. <laughs> but like, you know, like, it's almost like no matter what background we come from, what age group, you know, everyone has something to bring to the table. And 
you know, just thinking about the beloved community and that we're in a single garment of destiny. Yes. Um, I think this adds to our sharpness. Like this adds to, um, you know, us being like full, fuller human beings. But at the same time, like, because I think while, like Seraphine was saying, like the moral upliftment, mm -hmm. that's one thing. Mm -hmm. And, but on the other hand, like we're also discussing identity politics, these ideas of the ruling class that's an attack against our freedom. Yeah, that's true. But at the same time, like I remember 2016, before I was in the free school, I would have probably just seen identity politics as something infringing on our freedom of speech, which is true, mm -hmm. or something that is like taking our manhood away from us, which is true. Mm -hmm. But then we raise the question of how does, does this connect to the question of war and peace? Mm -hmm. And you just feel, there's this like feeling of, like you just feel blessed to have this responsibility now, this initiative, yeah. because you think of all of the suffering that you see nowadays, and a lot of it just comes from confusion. Because you could be, like, you know, I've seen people who don't have it all, like money-wise, who are oppressed, but they have, like, this very strong spirit. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, a lot of what we see today, yeah, is due to confusion and lack of purpose. What are you living for? Mm -hmm. And you can see how, like, you know, in the 60s and 70s, from the things that we studied, that people speak so directly. People are, are knowing they know what they're fighting for. Like this, the question of war and peace. Um, but today everything is like, oh, everyone is entitled to their own truth. Yes. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion. And um, it, it really, um, I, I would say, you know, an organization or a community, you know, we can begin to define that together. But I wrote, that the free school is a life-giving force mm. that gives us back our agency to struggle mm -hmm. for true. for substantive change. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, yeah, I'll end it. We have to speak this one forty-six. What time should it be? Uh, yeah. Okay. It doesn't matter. Oh, 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 Jayla, let me let me let some of these all heads that's been in the free school. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna tell you guys about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any, anybody anybody uh, want to say anything? Add to what has been said or say something different? <laughs> oh yeah, go ahead, Tracy. I don't, I don't know where this cult thing. Oh, God, uh, that's what people say. That's just general. Well, I think in the history of the preschool, we have been smeared in so many different ways. So at one time they were claiming that we were a cult. Right. And you know, that came primarily from professors at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, so that was guess where that came from. Well, you know. The fact that you're able to sit here and express what you want to express completely defies cult. I know, and that, that's why the people who are saying that aren't, aren't in this room. They don't come, yeah. they come bring the behinds up in the air yeah, and right. talk about what they want to talk about. Exactly. Well, you know, it's, if I could analogize it, 
you know, a lot of people will say what they want. Right. I want something that is not an organization uh, that allows for the freedom of speech and <laughs> um, any number of, you know, 10, 10 priorities. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and the thing is, well, like you say, you feel this freedom of speech. Right, right, right. But there's also freedom. Freedom of speech means freedom of disagreement. Right, right, right. And so a lot, I don't know, it's, I would say, and I, I don't, I feel as though many people use many um, tropes of many ways of talking about the free school because they don't want to acknowledge that they ideologically disagree with the free school. Right. Right, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. People have come and people have gone. Uh, and, but that's an expression of freedom. I feel that's, uh, uh, let me let Samir come in. Um, um, uh, yeah, I would say, uh, you know, the free school being called a cult. I don't uh, appreciate that because it infantilizes me because it's saying that uh, you don't know what you're thinking. You don't know what you agree with. Right. You're just marching to surround right. Trump. Right. Right. And um, it's a, you know, it's a voluntary organization. And um, then secondly, I would ask the question, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, one time Raju and I sat down and uh, he told me the preschool is not a party. And it was a big relief for me because I had been treating the preschool like it was a party. In that I treated the preschool and that I had a, uh, there was um, a democratic centralism going on. And that I thought that that was uh, appropriate, but Roger clarified for me that it's okay for people to disagree openly in the preschool. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know, sometimes that that has happened. And I appreciate that mm -hmm. I've been able to come to preschool and disagree over the table with you. And right. you know, I appreciate coming to the preschool and getting a political education. You know, somewhere reliable, getting an authentic political education mm -hmm. uh, to come to as a you know someone who is uh, a leftist in the city. You know, whether I'm uh, at the, with the preschool, flying preschool colors, or wearing a preschool shirt, or you know, doing something else in the city, uh, you know, stadium soccer or BBS. Mm -hmm. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to come here as a home base and um, recover, and most importantly, think and strategize. Um, and then, you know, uh, my question is: uh, so, if the preschool is an organization, I assume it, it desires to be a revolutionary organization. You know, what is the criteria for a revolutionary organization and how does that differ from a party? Yeah. Those are questions we'll answer and think about as we go forward. Okay. Go ahead, Emily. Okay. Actually, um, hearing you speak to me, I realized that I feel like my whole life, school, like traditional school, has taught me to agree, like agree with what is said. And I feel like actually preschool was the first time I was taught to disagree, like not just with the various scripts, but even like to have a voice in here and like to know actually stand for something genuinely um, and be honest about like how far you've come or how like how much you still think you need to learn. I think that's kind of interesting. Um, 
I also like the way um, Serafina called us an organism. Mm -hmm. Like, I really love that. I think. Living organism. It grows. It grows. Yeah, we, we grow. And also, I also like the way we also describe ourselves sometimes as um, like the world house. Mm -hmm. Because I think similar to a family, like we, the point is not just about ideas and isolation, but it's also about human development. Mm -hmm. And it's a foundation on which we hope that, like in the world, humanity is able to actually evolve and develop um, to like advance a new stage of humanity rather than advancing a stage of like decay or a stage of profit or whatever you want to call it. And that's also why, like, when we call ourselves like the beloved community, but also world house, because I think in a lot of ways it's like. Yeah, I think we are the world house. I mean, people of religion, many different religions and ages and races and creeds. Yeah, but I really love the organism, the idea of us as an organism. Yeah. I just looked up wow. what an organism means. Yeah, because it means a whole with interdependent parts, like mm -hmm. into a living being. Yeah. So, okay. I didn't know what that meant. That's what makes it organic. Yeah. Let me let Jayla in because she's had her hand up. Mm. Go ahead. One, y'all be in class talking about the space school and how that changed y'all lives. <laughs> so why are you always crying? I'm not crying. I was right. It was just a video here. The preschool is very great. And since I'm seeing here, it's like, you know, change my perspective of the world and how, you know, we should solve it. And it's nice to come together with different people, different ages and races, come together as a family and talk about, you know, world problems and how we solve it. And it, I see you. And the preschool has changed, you know, the way even people looked at me, you know, it's like, you know, why are you going to school all this time? You know, don't you learn this stuff in regular school? It's like, you will get some type of information from off the internet. You, you can't get this type of information from, you know, regular school because they're not going to teach you that, you know, probably because they want to teach you that. And so now you just get, so you got to find it for yourself. And when you come to preschool, you know, they give you that question and push you in that mindset. It's like, well, now I have to go see that answer for myself. But, you know, you know, having to agree, you know, disagree, like you said, you know, you are basically just part, you know, agree to what they say, right? You can't win this argument. You got to agree to it. <laughs> Disagreeing is, you know, a good part. And asking questions, you know, makes it, stronger so coming to preschool at such a young age for me is you know it was great thank you for dragging me into this <laughs> 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 and you know I think all y'all you know my family she's in your care yeah she's in your care yeah you know it's nice even though you just go somewhere else it's nice it's nice to you know be here and you know learn different things and now I kind of want to um, share it with other people because like you know Doc said 
we are all here because someone who's originally from the same school has brought us here or we learned about the same school we've come here. And it's like different, you know, ways you can see it. Also for that whole cult thing, they hate it. I think uh, with that having been said, I think we have to start a journey. Isn't that true? Um, we'll be continuing this through the 
last months of this year as we prepare to go into 2022. So, um, well, let's not go there yet. So um, I guess we can begin to kind of straighten up and spin.